How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's a lion! It's a lion! It's a lion! I guess everyone's a title one that's scared. Well, hello. Welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them, so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Terry O'Quinn. What? Who? Wait. Who am I here? Gary? Gary? Gary Horn. Gary Horn. Thank you, honey. (laughs) I'm your other host, film historian. Um... Who am I here? Justin. Justin? Justin. Justin Bishop. Oh, oh thank you. And I'm... Uh, who am I here? Writer-comedian? Oh, yeah. Writer-comedian. Writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Thank you, honey. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us for this special roulette episode. I like the idea that writer-comedian is just your official title. Like yeah, yeah. It's Esquire. Actually yeah. yeah. <laughs> writer slash comedian yeah writer slash comedian my parents were very forward thinking in the hospital <laughs> <laughs> oh man hey guys hey it's good we're to ready be for, here ready for another roulette episode oh, uh roulette yeah. episodes are fun because it feel it sometimes it feels like it's a little bit of a break you know because we do these big crazy um you know very in-depth series like the one we just ended with our, our Sam Raimi Spider-Man series oh, yeah. uh, but that still requires us to like really dive as deep as we can into these movies and it, it, we never really know because we don't vet these the way that we do our full series like when we do a full series I'm like well are there books and interviews and all this stuff that I can read whereas the roulette stuff is like I just throw it on our letterbox list and Hope for the best if we choose yeah. that one. And yeah. So, you know, like with our, I mean, even our last one, the Nice Guys episode was kind of like, we had to like scrape the bottom of the barrel on the internet to find all these interviews and things like that and just kind of put together this puzzle because there aren't any books on the Nice Guys. There aren't any behind the scenes documentaries. There aren't any commentaries or anything. So it was like, you really had to, we had to work at that. Uh, Lucky and, for and, us, there were 27 a, books on The Stepfather. Yeah, yeah, good, good thing. <laughs> now, this is uh, another one that's kind of like that, though, where it's like we, we had to kind of dig to get the info on this one. Yeah, and uh, production note, I just wanted to add in here, too. If you're looking on Pornhub, none of the Stepfather movies are this one. Uh, <laughs> But you do, in the the real one, you do still get to see Terry O'Quinn's wiener. (laughs) Totally different usage. uh, That's how deep our research went on this episode. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's like a hundred of them, at least. I had had an over-under on um, how long it was going to take 
for Gary to make that that specific stepfather joke on this episode. <laughs> yep. Uh, Listen, in my I'm mind, proud of us. I'm in proud. my mind, I was like, within the first five minutes, yes, I come out swinging, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I just knew the whole time I was writing like Terry O'Quinn's waiter. Yeah, I was, every- there it is. Yes. <laughs> 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 oh man i was sorry i'm coughing i was trying to i was trying to think about terry's little o'quinn or you know terry you know trying to structure it that way but you know sometimes off the cuff is the best way to go congratulations gary that was good oh they call you. your dick a little o'quinn me is that is that what you're referring <laughs> to no but it is my a davis <laughs> that yes. doesn't make that doesn't make any sense todd's, try that one todd's uh, a davis I don't get it. A Davis. You should try that out at your next open mic night and see how that goes with the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Next time you're workshopping some jokes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this week's, uh, I'm sure, I guess we've all figured it out. We have, we have mentioned the movie already several times. Also, if you clicked on this episode, you know, I don't know why I pretend like it's a mystery. Like you don't know what movie we're talking about. We're going to reveal it (laughs) again. (laughs) (laughs) But this week's randomly chosen roulette offering comes in the form of a movie that kind of flew under the radar when it was first released in 1987. Uh, And by under the radar, I mean nobody saw it in 1987. But it's one that's gained a cult following in the ensuing years, largely due to the performance of its lead actor, Terry O'Quinn. It's a movie with a fascinating story behind it. And and I'm not talking about the story of the production itself. Uh, That's interesting enough. But what's really fascinating, what I found myself really fascinated by when I started researching this was the story of the real-life horrors that inspired it. Uh, This week, we are talking about Joseph Rubin's The Stepfather. Dear Lord, we thank you for our dear friends, our wonderful home. But most of all, Father, we thank you for bringing us together as a family. Amen. Amen. When I came here, I was a stranger. But I've never felt more at home anywhere in my life. I have beautiful friends. I have a wonderful new family. This is as good as it gets. You never talk about your past. Past is important. Didn't even exist until I met you. Hi, honey. He scares me. I'm afraid of him. He's your father now, and you'll respect him. He's not my father. He's just some crazy creep. I don't think we have to break up the family, do we, Pumpkin? Okay, everybody, this is our spoiler warning. We are going to talk about this movie's plot and production in detail. So if you haven't seen the movie... I don't know if it's the kind of thing you should be looking at. So the stepfather is loosely based on the crimes of a real-life mass murderer named John List. Every time I typed this, guys, I got to tell you, I I kept writing John Locke every time. <laughs> just, <laughs> I, it just, my brain just kept going John and then Locke just automatically because I've got yep. Terry O'Quinn's face in my head. Yep. <laughs> John Locke, I don't think, was a mass murderer. Uh, yeah. I don't think, but who knows? I mean- We didn't see, I mean, we saw some of his backstory. Yeah, Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) So anyway, please indulge me as we turn Cinema Shock, at least temporarily, into yet another true crime podcast, because the more that I read into this guy's story, the more fascinated I became. Uh, And fair warning, some of the details are a little bit gruesome because, you know, it's about a 
family annihilator. Uh, So it's kind of hard to talk about that without getting into some gory details. So John List was born on September 17th, 1925 in Bay City, Michigan. Uh, He grew up as the only child in a strict Lutheran household where his overbearing mother constantly doted on him and his religious father instilled him with a deep fear of God. After high school, List enlisted in the Army, where he served in World War II as a lab technician, so I don't think he ever saw any, like, actual combat. Mm. But after his discharge, he went to the University of Michigan, where he earned a... (laughs) You think the uh, Wolverines are really proud to have John List as as an alum? Here's the thing. (laughs) I'm thinking ahead to our uh, hashtags for this episode, so we've already got true crime, so let's have... uh... Uh, University of Michigan. So. Sure, why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the University of Michigan, he earned a master's degree in accounting. So he's a big fucking nerd. Yeah. In uh, 1950, as the Korean War began to escalate, List was recalled to active military service. And not long after, he met a woman named Helen Taylor, who was the widow of a serviceman who'd been killed during the war. Uh, the two of them got married in 1951 after dating for only three months. Now, later on, John would claim that the reason that they got married so quickly was because Helen had lied to him about being pregnant and they had kind of roped him into getting married. Uh, now, despite this deception, and that's, again, if it ever happened, because kind of hard to believe the word of a mass murderer. But if if it happened, uh, regardless, they ended up being married for 20 years, raising four children together. In 1965, List and his family moved to Westfield, New Jersey. Uh, now, Westfield, New Jersey is a um, it's a pretty affluent area of New Jersey. Like, uh, there's a lot of money there, so that, that should tell you something about wh- where they are kind of in life at this point. And uh, when they moved there, you know, by all appearances, they seem to be the model of suburban success. List, uh, he became the vice president and comptroller of a local bank, and his family lived in an 18-room Victorian-style mansion. Uh, if, if, if you you can look up pictures of it very easily on the internet. I mean, it it is a an enormous house. It had uh, like I said, 18 rooms, three floors. It had a ballroom in it. Like it was a, you know, they were doing well for themselves. Uh, you know, so they're they're like this picture perfect little family. They attended church every week. Uh, John was actually a Sunday school teacher at their local Lutheran church. But within a few years, things started to fall apart. Uh, John lost his job with the bank, and it was apparently due not to his performance because he was a very good accountant by all by by all accounts. But it, he was he lost his job due to a uh, quote personality issue strange mm. i heard he had a killer personality ah there it is i'm sorry <laughs> gary's two for two that's nice <laughs> john however gary. was uh too proud to let his family know that he was unemployed uh, he would later say i grew up with the idea that you should provide for your family and to do that you had to be a success in the job that you had or you're a failure and that was not a good thing to be So to hide his unemployment from his family, he would dress up in his work attire every day, which is for him a full suit and tie. Uh, John List is one of those guys who like always wore a suit and tie. You know, like he mowed his grass in a suit and tie. He was that guy (laughs) uh, because he felt like he that's that's how that's how buttoned up he was. My uncle did that. (laughs) That's so fucking weird. Was your uncle a mass murderer? Because I feel like the Not only people I know of, <laughs> I feel like that's total serial killer behavior. Uh... <laughs> but uh, did your your uncle really mowed the grass in a full suit? Okay, so I cannot imagine how fucking hot 
and I see people in this neighborhood do that actually. So, really? Okay. In All like right. slacks and stuff, you know. Like, so <laughs> weird. Where as little as possible, as as little as legally possible when you're right. mowing the grass in South Carolina in the middle of summer. Okay, to be fair, uh my uncle lives in Pittsburgh and we drove up to the house and it was clear like we got there late in the day, so it was clear he had just gotten home from the office. He's a doctor. And it it looked like he just kind of ditched the suit, coat, and tie, and was like he drove in and was like, "Oh, the grass needs mowed," so he just took off the jacket and tie. C- couldn't take the extra the ninety seconds to throw on some shorts or something. Nope. <laughs> so, yeah. so weird. Anyway, yeah. no. Anyway, so he would dress up in his work attire. He would. He did this every day. And he would drive to the train station and he would spend like six to eight hours every day at the train station just to keep up appearances to make his family think that he was going off to work. Wow. Uh, so obviously things are not financially great because this is going on for months, months mm. and months. This is mm. going on. Uh, now, he was probably looking for a new job during that time, obviously unsuccessfully. But uh, things at home started kind of unraveling as well. He had a 16-year-old daughter, His uh, Patty was her name. She expressed an interest in becoming an actress. She had been in some like school plays and stuff. But he, uh, being incredibly conservative, Liss actually saw that uh, as, as immoral, becoming an actress. He mm-hmm. saw that as kind of a sin. His wife, Helen, uh, she was already a heavy drinker, but she began drinking really to excess. She was uh, an alcoholic, is, is what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also had tertiary syphilis, which she had contracted from her first marriage, which was a detail that she had kept hidden from List for 18 years. Uh, so the combination the combination of her alcoholism and her syphilis caused her health and appearance to deteriorate rapidly, turning her into what List would later describe as an unkempt and paranoid recluse. Apparently, she was a lot of fun. Uh, constantly also railing on him about how he didn't uh, give it to her like his ex did. Yeah, I mean, like I mean, her sex. ex. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sex. He didn't give her the sex like her. Ex. Right. Not not the syphilis. No, well, yeah. <laughs> so to the deeply religious list, his family was kind of falling from grace. You know, he he literally feared for their immortal souls. So all of this combined with the financial burden he was under, uh, he was just, you know, getting had debt was just piling up with him being on un, being unemployed and living in, you know, a, a literal mansion. So this just became too much for List, and he began working on a horrendous plan, one that would play out on Monday, November 9th, 1971. Just to be clear, too, I was not taking up for List uh, about his wife making fun of his wiener or anything. Uh, clearly, this guy is also broken. Uh, we're oh, not yeah. talking about, and, and like Justin said, we're not talking about a family living in squalor here. This is about status, and it's about image. It's like... That 18 or 19, depending on where you look, room, Victorian mansion, they had a fucking ballroom, like Justin said. And in that ballroom was a skylight that was assigned Tiffany original that because of this podcast, I now have to know what that means. And it was (laughs) apparently made by this famous artist named Louis Comfort Tiffany. And let's be honest, that's probably supposed to be pronounced Louis who's this famous stained glass artist who was part of the Art Nouveau and aesthetic movements, who was a big-time designer, and yes, was related to that Tiffany who had the jewelry store and Louis was the first head designer for. Anyway, that skylight by itself was worth what amounts to today about $700,000. 
Uh, so yeah. sell your fucking house, John. That's what yeah. you might say. Yeah. But this, <laughs> this is a guy who, aside from a psychotic break, I think is a testament to how wild things were getting around this time with uh, the demonization of public assistance or government support. He was so desperate to have like such an idealized life that he couldn't bear the thought of not having a job or getting help for it. And it sounds yeah. like his family relationship wasn't great. His wife was. Well, and I, and I think a lot of that, a lot of like his obsession with status uh, came from his, his own parents and his own upbringing. Cause his parents were uh, like in, incredibly strict. Uh, and they, they instilled this, not only religious fervor in them, but this idea that like, you have to take care of your family. That's what a man does. If you can't mm -hmm. do that, you're worthless. That's, that's kind of what he he felt like. And I mean, his, his family, I, I read one account that said that his parents were actually like, they were like cousins or something like that. Like they were, uh, I don't know if they were first cousins or second cousins, but they were, they were like closely related. They were German Im immigrants, I believe, nice. uh, so there were a lot of issues in his own childhood that led it, his mother wouldn't let him have friends. Uh, so he became this like a real mama's boy, like a real like Norman Bates kind of, you know, like yeah. obsessed with his mother because uh, mm. she lived with the family. His mother did uh, at this time. When you talk about what a man does, I mean, his wife's already demeaning. And so imagine what she's going to say if he comes home and doesn't have a job now. Right. And so he's so afraid of the scenario. Like apparently he also was like talking to his kids about getting jobs so they could learn uh responsibility like financial responsibility but it's really to get some extra income coming in because he's scraping money off his mom's savings accounts i think because somehow he can rationalize that or whatever but yeah. uh this brother was so desperate to pull himself up by his bootstraps that he was gonna like hang his kids with him too in the process yeah Jeez. yeah so after seeing his children off to school he set his plan into motion uh list waited for his wife helen to come downstairs for her morning coffee. And he, he apparently let her like sit and finish a couple of cups of coffee in the hopes that her final moments would be, you know, doing something that she enjoys. So mm -hmm. while she enjoyed her final sips of her coffee, he shot her in the back of the head right there in the middle of the kitchen. He then dragged her body into the home's ballroom and wrapped it up in a sleeping bag. So next he went upstairs uh, that's where his 84-year-old mother was having breakfast. She lived in a bedroom upstairs. Uh, he kissed her uh, in a very kind of Judas uh, type way and mm. then shot her in the head as well. Now he didn't, he didn't move her. Uh, he apparently, she's the only body that didn't get uh, grouped together. Uh, apparently she, he couldn't lift her, I guess, uh, to take her all the way down from the third floor down to the bottom floor. So he then went about cleaning the kitchen with paper towels and a mop. See, another thing about John List is that he is an absolute neat freak. Uh, very much type A, like, you know, I mean, like I said, he's a very, he's a guy who Moses lawn in a, suit so very very buttoned up uh very obsessed with with image in all ways so he uh he goes about cleaning up the kitchen uh and and part of the reason he did that is because when his kids came home he didn't want them to know what to expect he didn't want them to walk into what was you know a, a kitchen with his their mother's blood splattered all over the place yeah yeah then he spent the rest of the afternoon making moves to help cover his tracks, planning ahead for when the bodies would eventually be discovered. Uh, he went to the post office and he canceled all of his family's mail so that the mail wouldn't arrive. Uh, then he went to the bank and at the bank, he cashed his mother's savings bonds, uh, which in a minute you'll find out that that money is going to sustain him after he flees the scene. 
Uh, after returning home, he made several phone calls to explain that his family would be traveling to North Carolina. He called their school and, you know, the various extracurricular activities to let them all know, hey, the kids are going to be gone for a while. We're traveling to North Carolina to visit their ailing grandmother, his wife's mother, who was indeed sick. Uh, and that he was going to follow by car. So that was kind of covering why nobody was going to see them for a while. Then he sat down, had a little lunch uh, at the same table where he had killed his wife just a few hours earlier, and then he waited for his children to come home. So the first of his kids to arrive home was Patty, the 16-year-old daughter. Uh, Liz shot her in the back of the head, just as he'd done to her mother, and then dragged her body into the ballroom as well. Mm. The next to arrive was Liz's younger son, 13-year-old Frederick, who uh, met the same fate, shot in the head. He's shooting all of them in the back of the head so that they don't see it coming because he 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 has this weird this weird moral compass where he doesn't want them to be afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's 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 incredibly bizarre. It's very of mice and men. Yeah, um, yeah. So List's oldest son, 15-year-old John Jr., he actually had a soccer game that evening, so he didn't come home directly from school like the other two did. Instead of waiting for his son to come home, List actually went to his son's soccer game and watched him play. And he noted later that he had a great game, you know, which is a strange thing to think about later on. And then uh, the two came home together. And as they arrived home after the game, uh, John Jr. kind of went ahead. He he took the lead into the kitchen and List pulled out a gun and shot him in the back of the head as well. John Jr., however, did not die immediately. Uh, Mm. As he struggled, List shot nine more bullets into his son before the boy stopped moving. He's using two different guns, by the way. He's got two different handguns during this, one of which was a like a World War II antique that he had just bought as a collector, but it was still a functioning handgun. Now you're not going to feel so good about watching The Stepfather, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, List later admitted to feeling relieved that the whole ordeal was over. So he enjoyed a small dinner. Then he went about cleaning the kitchen again. Uh, Afterwards, he sat down to write a letter to his pastor, confessing his crimes with a cold, calculated detachment, explaining, this is a direct quote from that letter, at least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if that would be the case? Yeah, so that that was kind of his thing. He, He thought that he was doing a good thing. He thought that by killing them, they would be going to heaven. Yeah, and that and there, there there's a reason he didn't kill himself because he thought that that would damn himself to hell. Uh, it's just very like again that strict Lutheran upbringing. So after he finished writing that letter, List set the thermostat on low to preserve the bodies for as long as possible. He left them there in the ballroom, and then he went through the house and he tore his image out of every family photograph in the house so that the police wouldn't have anything to use in the wanted posters because you know this is the, the nineteen early 1970s. So there's no obviously no internet or anything like that. If you're, Mm. if somebody doesn't have a physical photo of you, then they have nothing to go by. So he removed every single image of himself from the house. So he's very much thinking with a clear mind. This isn't some like rage thing. Like he has thought every single detail of this out. This is very cold, very calculated, very planned. He then turned on all the lights in the house and he even played some music on the house's intercom to give the impression of activity within so that the neighbors wouldn't be suspicious. He then drove his car to JFK Airport in New York City, uh, although he never boarded a plane. Uh, It would be about a month before his family's bodies were discovered uh, and List himself would not be found for another 17 years. 
During that time, he managed to create an entirely new identity for himself in Denver, Colorado. Uh, it was actually later discovered that after he dropped his car off at JFK, he made his way to a train station and then traveled by rail to Michigan and then to Colorado. I did not realize how thorough you were with this, Justin. You you covered pretty much everything. Uh, even Anything I wanted to add to this, I don't know. I just thought it was nuts that you don't... Crime was so much easier back yeah. in the day, kids. You just oh, tear yeah. up the pictures. Uh, <laughs> so the good cops don't even know. They don't even know who the hell they're looking for. He doesn't have a Facebook. Right. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know what to do now. And uh, I guess Jobs did not care if you had a valid ID, or I guess he just gets a fake one or something. I don't even really yeah. know. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, because yeah, that was my first thought was like, oh, DMV's got to have his photo, right? <laughs> yeah, but I don't know how the like, I don't know how what the record system would have been like back then. Yeah. I yeah. mean, obviously, it wasn't good enough for them to find him because it was almost two decades before he was found. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was a month before they even knew that it was a problem. So, it, yeah. Yeah. So the, the reason that it that the bodies were found to begin with is because, you know, like I said, he kept the lights on in the house. Mm -hmm. But they eventually the light bulbs, because they were on 24 hours a day, started burning out one by one. And the neighbors took notice and the neighbors got suspicious and the neighbors called the police. The police ended up coming in. I think they had to come in through like a window, like a side. Yeah, window yeah it was like an unlocked window. And when they did, they immediately found the bodies in in the ballroom wrapped mm -hmm. up in sleeping bags. So the crazy part is, it's like the movie takes liberties with, uh, you know, how. It's a it's a badass opening sequence for a movie where there's like yeah. blood everywhere, yeah. but this dude cleaned up everything. It like, was like very... spotless. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the opening to the movie is very gruesome, and a it's a fantastic opening scene. I think like it it just like the because you don't really know what's going on, but you see him changing his appearance, you know, and mm -hmm. but then as he walks down through that absolute carnage of that living room with dead kids face down on the floor. Like it is, it is a hell of an opening scene. Yeah. Uh, it's very effective, I think, but yeah, the real life crimes were nothing like that. Uh, like it, this one looks like he took a chainsaw to his family. Whereas the real John list did it, you know, probably not the best phrasing, but the most humane way possible. He made it quick for them. Yeah. That was his goal. Yeah. Uh, and th but then he cleaned it up completely. Like he took all evidence away, no fingerprints, nothing, I don't I don't know how how good fingerprint analysis was in 71 but uh it, it existed but mm -hmm. uh yeah so there was literally no no evidence of of him there I mean they knew it was him that did it because again he he cut all of his pictures out <laughs> of of all of the photos so that's a little suspicious you start walking around the house and you're like uh the John John cut all his pictures out of uh, out of here I wonder why so they knew it was him <laughs> but they didn't know where he was so he ends up in Colorado and in Colorado, he lived under the name of Robert Peter Clark, Bob Clark, and he became employed as an accountant. He, he first actually got a job as like a line cook, I think, while he was getting established. And I'm assuming he's he's living on the money from his mother's savings bonds during this time, because this is like going on a year from the murders. And I, but he ends up being getting a job as an accountant, I think, for H&R Block, actually, in Denver uh, in 1972. This is just a year after his family's murder. And then so he goes he's, on he's, to direct uh, Porky's at a Christmas story. Yeah. Black and Christmas. Uh, Black Christmas. Yeah. Uh, he moved to Canada. And <laughs> so he, he sets up this whole new identity. And ever the devout Lutheran, he joined the local 
Lutheran Church, St. Paul's Lutheran Church, and there he ran a carpool service uh, to help shut in church members uh, to, so they could come to church and he'd help them shop for groceries and stuff. Uh, so, you know, again, by all outward appearances, seems like a really good guy. Uh, he even managed to remarry. In 1984, he met a woman named Dolores Miller at a church service. Uh, I believe she was a widow as well, like his first wife was, if I'm not mistaken. But the two hit it off, and they were married within a year. Wow. So to everyone who knew them, Bob and Dolores had this kind of per picture-perfect marriage. Uh, neighbors and members of his church congregation had nothing but nice things to say about Bob Clark. The only thing people would say is that he's a little stand, a little, little awkward, a little weird as far as in the way that a lot of well, people who become professional accountants might be, you know, they're a little socially <laughs> awkward. Uh, they're, you know, he's a, he's a little just not not unfriendly, but not not necessarily warm. At least know, three that... people just turned this podcast off. Yeah. <laughs> listen, I'm not listen. I am not uh, besmirching the good uh, name of of accountants. Uh, they are <laughs> they are highly necessary, but uh, you do have to be a little bit of a nerd to be an accountant. But yeah, so everyone around him kind of, you know, they they everyone kind of liked Bob. It wasn't like he was the most popular guy in town, but nobody had any issues with him. Mm. Uh, but it wouldn't be long before his violent past would come to light. Now, there is more to John List's story, and we will get into that before this episode's over. Uh, but before the full scope of his story was made public, uh, before his story was over, in fact, the murder of his family had already caught the attention of at least one person in Hollywood. Okay, so I have a question for you guys because over the course, uh, well, of course, over you know, over time in our friendship, we've we've all been friends now for about twenty years. <laughs> yeah, thereabouts. Yep. Um, and it's been mentioned a couple times uh, on this show that the three of us have religious backgrounds, at least to to different to varying degrees, but you know, some extent, uh, religious backgrounds. Has any of this ever has has your religious experiences ever had you has has it instilled in you any sort of weird things that carry on to this day? Like I know both of us had religious backgrounds, but we've all grown and you know gone different ways. I, you know, this isn't a question about your beliefs and what you what you believe now, but just is there any sort of weird lingering characteristics trauma? trauma? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, nothing that would cause me to murder my entire family. Right, uh, right, right. But psychological <laughs> trauma, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you when you grow up in a religious uh, family that where, where the cornerstone of and, and my parents were very loving. My parents were not like incredibly strict or anything like that. I mean, I I you know my dad took me to see Terminator Two when I was like eight years old. So my you know, and, and yet I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons. It doesn't make any sense. But uh, you know. When, when the cornerstone of of your religion is is that you are born not good enough, like which mm. for for Christianity that is kind of the cornerstone of like every everyone who's born is not good enough unless you do this and this and this, that can fuck up a kid's psychology, uh, yeah. quite frankly. And so yeah, I would say that that is something that I mean I'm 41 years old and it's still there are I can recognize that where the where the origin of certain feelings are mm -hmm. but it's still like it, it has still caused some psychological trauma absolutely yeah <laughs> you know for all the stuff 
at least uh, pop culture wise. I, it's weird, Justin, that you mentioned the Simpsons thing, because that was a rule in my house, too. I remember receiving corporal punishment for watching the Simpsons. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it was it was very it was very odd. Walt Davis was a Vietnam veteran. So to transition from Vietnam veteran to Baptist minister uh, and and be raising a family like tr- there was like some a couple of layers of trauma. <laughs> yeah. I um I was also not allowed to watch The Simpsons. This is a weird thing. I think That's media so has something to do with this or something. Yeah. Like, how did this how did this translate for everyone? Right. You, the <laughs> Simpsons were just the worst. Like like Bart saying eat my shorts is the worst fucking thing a kid could ever say, right? Yes. <laughs> so I disrespectful. Say, I don't know that, what not karamba means, it. but it cannot be healthy. <laughs> well i think that's it though like i think my parents were very concerned about the respect level being influenced by bart simpson but at the same time the show also portraying the parental figures as figures not worthy of respect dude Um, i've totally i there was that we can yeah, get into uh, analyzing. Yeah, I didn't Simpsons mean to go off on a long. huge tangent. Uh, well, no, <laughs> I, I, I will say this: like, I think I'm, I'm less, um, I have less resentment for it than a lot of people. Like, I mm. think that for some people, it can be a foundation that that could be good. But he, he, Justin's right. I mean, it does taken the wrong way. Like, I, I, I get the all have sinned part thing and what it's supposed, what it should mean technically, but it's um what where they where it could be like community rather than like uh you're terrible but but um, when you're like a seven-year-old eight-year-old kid and you're told that you're not good enough like by you go to church and like the foundation of every sermon is that you were born not good enough i mean that that's essentially what christianity oh i I totally get how Uh, and listen i i had I mean, we could we could spend a whole episode talking about. I mean, I, I've seen straight up racism and everything. My big one was what Todd mentioned. I hated the authority authoritarianism of yeah. the whole thing. Or people when I would see things like straight up racism and be like, yeah. and this guy's over me. Like this, right. this is supposed to. He's supposed to know more than me. Like I'm. Yeah. 14 years old and i know that you're being an asshole right now the hypocrisy the hypocrisy hypocrisy is 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 a big i mean turn off for a lot of people but that's something that as you get older you really start recognizing that you know and and that all goes into this guy and i i think just i don't know i think that this guy the whole it's a it's religion and other things that are like like i said that that whatever facilitate that obsession with status and that mm-hmm. uh just and part of it was when he was being brought up because you got to think this is 1971 so he would have been being brought up in you know the the, the 50s the 40s and 50s yeah. uh which was a, a deeply like conservative period of time mm-hmm. in, in america so it, it's uh, there are a lot of factors there but his religious upbringing was 100 a a major factor in that not not to mention like just his the way that he was parented period right right he he was just like not allowed to do anything not allowed to socialize Uh, you can't allow a kid to not socialize like you know you're gonna fuck him up yeah it was just really the the perfect soup yeah serial killer (laughs) soup or well (laughs) not a serial it's not a serial killer he's a mass murderer he's a family annihilator what, what is the what is the definition of mass murderer? Because I, I when mass I hear murder mass murder, versus I think like 
at least double double digits, if not triple digits. But I think I, I don't know. I don't know what the, the the exact number is to be considered a mass murderer. I would say mm. uh, multiple. Uh, I mean, more than two. Mm, yeah. <laughs> In this mm. case, it's he killed uh, five people. Five. So, yeah. yeah. And uh, serial where, killer gets more defined by like you have to do it over a over period a period of time. Of time. Yeah. yeah. Mass murder is like in one one go. Gotcha. Gotcha. Anyway, back to the movie. <laughs> There's a movie. What is the movie? What yeah. So this. We're, who we're are we here? It. So we're. we're <laughs> what podcast is this? Cinema Shock. <laughs> oh, Cinema Shock. Thanks, honey. <laughs> uh, so Carolyn Leftcourt. Uh, she was a story editor for Walt Disney Pictures when she read a newspaper article about John List's murders. She knew that this was a good potential inspiration for a movie. Uh, but knowing it wasn't exactly Disney material, she brought the story to a man named Brian Garfield. If you look at Disney's material over time, there's a lot of death amongst family members. So uh... yeah, but the dad doesn't do it. <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah, it's ra- yeah, that's rare. <laughs> but I, but as a side note, I did find an interesting article about all the death in Disney movies. So oh I'm yeah, sure. Disney Disney movies are incredibly dark when you really start thinking about it. It just, yeah. it, just it would just be a weirder turn if Bambi's dad had an office mom. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah you see, like just Bambi's, Bambi's dad, dad like... with the rifle. <laughs> <laughs> so brian garfield was a prolific novelist who had published his first book at the age of 18 wow. and over the course of his career he published more than 70 books 19 of which were made into movies or tv shows he also would apparently go ape shit if you put a thing of lasagna in front of him <laughs> okay hated mondays <laughs> So and was downright to downright abusive to his to his owner John. Yeah, and Opie. Yeah, Opie Odie. What's Odie. his name? Odie. Odie. Yeah, oh, I said Opie. That's from the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> <laughs> so the first and most notable of Brian Garfield's adaptations came in 1974 when his novel from two years prior, Death Wish, was adapted into a film by Michael Winner with Charles Bronson in the lead role. Uh, you guys, I know you guys are familiar with Death Wish. I mean, I know Gary yeah. is because we we did an episode on the old show of That's Death true. Wish. Uh, right. Good movie. So with, with Death Wish, Garfield began a career in film. And by the time that Carolyn Leftcourt brought him the story of John Liss in the, in the mid-1980s, uh, he had started, well, I, it might have been actually before the mid-1980s. It might have been like by the mid, mid-70s mid or so when she actually brought the newspaper article because this was in development for a while. Uh, but by that time, he had his, started his own production company called Shan Productions. And Garfield liked the idea. Uh, he thought this was a, a good idea as like a starting point for a screenplay. Uh, so he proposed that they write a story about the next family that this guy marries into. Uh, of course, at the time, List was still at large. When, when she was bringing this newspaper article, List was nowhere to be found. He was in the wind. Nobody knew where he was or what had happened to him. So they had no idea that he created an entirely new identity for himself. And that's one of the things when I started digging into this, uh, the background on this movie that, that just kind of blew my mind was they essentially predicted what John List was going to do in real life, which is create a new identity and and you know, start a new family. Because uh, they had no idea that this was this was actually going on thousands of miles away. So Garfield approached an old friend of his, a guy named uh, Donald E. Westlake, and asked him to collaborate with him on the screenplay for this. So Westlake, like Garfield, 
was not primarily known as a screenwriter, but as a novelist. Although, like Garfield, many of his novels have been adapted into film, his most famous creation is a character named Parker, who is a professional robber, who was the main protagonist in 24 of Westlake's books. I think he wrote them under a a pen name, a pseudonym, Mm. but uh, Parker has been the subject of several films, although the character's name is often changed actually at Westlake's insistence. He didn't want them to be like associated with Parker unless it was going to be like an ongoing franchise. Mm. He had this weird like clause in it. So Lee Marvin was the first actor to play the character in a movie called Point Blank, which if you have not seen Point Blank, I 100% highly recommend it. Lee Marvin is like one of the coolest motherfuckers to ever live. And point blank is one of his, one of his best roles. I think it's a really great movie. Nice. So the character has also been played by uh, Michelle Constantine, Anna Karina, Jim Brown, RIP just passed away this week. Mm -hmm. Uh, Robert Duvall, Peter Coyote, Mel Gibson, and Jason Statham. Uh, Jason Statham is actually the only one of those who the character was named Parker. The movie was called Parker. It came out like in, 2016 or 17 probably i don't think it made much of a splash mel gibson mel gibson played him in payback the movie payback but but the character had a different name yeah in fact in our recent episode about the nice guys our last roulette episode actually uh we actually had a small footnote about westlake and the parker character towards the end of that episode uh because shane black we were talking about kind of what his his next move was going to be uh, and Shane Black has written a screenplay based off of one of Westlake's books and plans on directing it with uh, Robert Downey Jr. playing Parker. So we might get another Parker no- uh, movie here at some point in the near future. So anyway, while uh, Left Court, Garfield, and Westlake, they all kind of collaborated on the story itself. You'll see them all credited uh, with a story by credit. It was actually Westlake who wrote the final screenplay. So they shot this screenplay around for nearly a decade before they got any bites on it. And it eventually landed on the desk of producer Jay Benson of ITC Productions, which was a company primarily known for television shows at the time, including The Muppet Show. Yeah, imagine if they had gone with that route with this movie. Uh, <laughs> everybody, but everybody except Terry O'Quinn is a Muppet. Yeah. I think Terry O'Quinn still has to be a Muppet. I think. I think. Jill instead of blood think, it's just stuffing everywhere i think stephanie the daughter has to be <laughs> yeah. the only the only human if we're doing that right, uh, i think terry o'quinn's character is played by um yeah that is 100 you nailed it sam the eagle <laughs> 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 that is, <laughs> that is good casting some order around here <laughs> uh, somebody somebody please do this on the internet for us we, we, we i need that to happen at least like a trailer or something oh, the Muppet God, yes. <laughs> oh man so anyway benson this he gets a hold of the script and he's immediately intrigued when he sees westlake's name credited on it because jay benson he's a prolific reader he loves crime and mystery novels and he was a big fan of donald westlake's so he read the script and saw a lot of potential in the concept bro itc is like a whole other rabbit hole altogether it's fascinating well mainly like this jewish guy lev wanogratsky who ran it and he's technically an uncredited executive producer on this film he goes or went by the name Lou Grade, spelled L-E-W-G-R-A-D-E. And it came from like some typo somewhere along in his life, and he loved it, so he just stuck with that. He was 
a guy who like grew up, he, he was uh, judged by Fred Astaire to be the uh, Charleston champion of the world. He booked wow. entertainment for World War II soldiers. He started wow. some London agency that uh, he ended up selling for like $21 million. He became a lord. Uh, so people would call him, uh, as a joke, uh, Sir Low Grade instead of Lou Grade. <laughs> uh, but he bought ITC because he loved the idea of how much money you can make selling to TV uh, when nobody had caught on to that yet. So he was going all in on TV movies. If you look back on some of his stuff, he's like doing a lot of TV movies, stuff like that. And yeah, he's the one who helped Jim Henson get the Muppet show off the ground when everybody else was shooting it down. Uh, also the Muppet movie, the great Muppet caper. Anyway, Jay Benson was working on a project for it with Elizabeth Taylor on it. It was a TV movie called Malice in Wonderland. Ah, like nice that. title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when he got this one, he was given the go ahead to get behind it. And, uh, just, I, I don't know. This guy seems like he'd be like a whole episode's worth of bullshit. And so that's why we'll be turning the stepfather into a three part series. Of- <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, I mean, he did do some crazy stuff. I mean, he, uh, he worked with, uh, uh, what's his name, Blake Edwards on the Pink Panther movies a little bit, I believe, as well. Yeah, so, well, wow. I think not the first one, but then he had like convinced him Return to of the back, Pink Panther. Yeah, to do them for like TV movies or something like that. And, yeah, so I don't know. I think we will probably talk a little bit more about him in the future because we, we do have another another series in on in the pipeline way down the pipe like in a year from now probably where we will uh we'll probably talk about him a little bit more uh because uh, he is a fascinating character i mean just look him up look up lou look up a photo of lou gray do an image search of him do an image search of him because he looks exactly like a movie character who plays a who who is playing like a a hollywood executive yeah, <laughs> like he nice. looks, he looks just like that guy. He's always got a big old cigar uh, hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he looks like a real character. Like I want to see a movie based on this guy, like yeah. you know, or a movie <laughs> character based on this guy. Anyway, uh, the script gets sold to ITC with the understanding that ITC would retain both Westlake and his script. Meaning, you know, if there were any further rewrites on it. Uh, Westlake would be involved. And then ITC immediately moved forward on the project, hiring Joseph Rubin to direct. So Joseph Rubin, uh, really interesting guy, really interesting career. He'd started his career in low budget and exploitation filmmaking, making his feature film debut in 1974 with a thriller called The Sister-in-Law, starring John Savage. Nice. Yeah, John Savage uh, is actually a uh, Star Trek alum. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Who isn't these days? I know, right? <laughs> Get them all out while you can, Todd, because on our next series, you're maybe episode like five of our next series, you're going to have somebody. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the first few episodes, yeah, you're 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 not going to have any any Star Trek connections. So just get it all out of your system during this. Episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, next up was a teen exploitation comedy called The Pom Pom Girl, starring Robert Carradine in 1976, followed by another teen movie the following year, Joyride, also starring Carradine alongside Desi Arnaz Jr. and uh, a very young Melanie Griffith in that movie as well. And uh, in 1978, he directed a sports drama called Our Winning Season, featuring Dennis Quaid in an early role. Uh, he would reteam with Quaid on a movie called Gorp, G O R P, Gorp. In 1980, Gorp is one of those movies I've never seen, but I always remember seeing like the video cover at the video store. It's one of those like Mm. that's just embedded in my brain and I have no idea what the movie is or what it's about. I just remember (laughs) seeing that cover all the time. 
1984, Ruben first began to get some mainstream recognition when he directed a movie called Dreamscape. Uh, once again, starring Dennis Quaid as a guy who can enter people's dreams. You guys may have seen that when you were kids. I know I did. Uh, that's another one that was kind of a video store staple. And that movie was a hit. It was a box office success. It made about $12 million on a $6 million budget. Got really good reviews. So that that was kind of his big break after you know uh, uh, about a decade in making films. Mm. And it was Dreamscape that really led to Ruben being picked for The Stepfather. Uh, and he was kind of hesitant about taking the job at first because in the in the ensuing years since the time that this script was, you know, originally written to when it was actually getting made, you know, slasher movies became a thing. And Ruben was not a fan of horror movies, and he especially disliked slasher movies. And he almost dropped out of this because he was worried that his producers might be looking to turn the stepfather into just another slasher movie. Uh, luckily, after speaking to Jay Benson, he was assured that ITC was looking for a more of a character-based thriller not a hack and slash horror movie which sold ruben on it and he decided to stay on I, I found a couple of interviews with him and uh when asked about like what made him come on he said uh well in most cases it starts with the scripts i read an early draft and what hit me most is whenever you're looking at a thriller the first thing you look at is how good the bad guy is what made him interesting was the fact that he wanted or that what he wanted is in some sense what we all want the beautiful home beautiful wife beautiful norman rockwell family when reality didn't jive with his fantasy, it would eventually drive him to kill his family. He hoped to start this family that would achieve this ideal, and of course, it never happened. So he was a really interesting serial killer, and it all revolved around the family and the search for family. That's what attracted me. Attracted me. The bad guy was just so interesting. The script was a little different, though, when he when he got signed on, and and he did. He does say that he he called his agent and tried to get out of it initially, but he was assured by the studio that they're not going for horror, like Justin said, and uh, they could make some changes. Um, interesting little side notes I found about the script. Apparently, Donald Westlake actually had a father who had lost his job and didn't tell his family about it for a long time. Oh, wow. Oh, jeez. Wow. <laughs> uh, oh, he also and, had a stepdaughter at the time that he didn't get along with very well. So I think he based some of uh, Ste the Stephanie character on her. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I don't think he was killed or killed by any of these people. But uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, but the other stuff is similar. Uh, uh, originally, pers the person chasing Jerry Blake was just a cop, but it was Ruben's idea to make it more personal to uh the previous thing mm -hmm. um but there are definitely some elements that had more horror involved uh in the original script like the beating of the psychiatrist from one uh when he's trying to buy a house was apparently more brutal initially they even apparently filmed it brutally and uh but then they decided look we don't have to show everything here the impact of the scene is enough it doesn't need to be completely gory he he also says the original script featured Jerry Blake as a kid and kept showing flashbacks to him being locked in a basement and abused. And Ruben convinced Westlake that that's unnecessary, that he liked the idea of not knowing how or why Blake is the way he is. He just is. Yeah, uh, scarier that way. Yeah. So I should have told Rob Zombie that when he went to remake Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> and it's weird because Ruben has all these horror skills and you hear that. It's funny, like Michael... Uh, Gingold from Fangoria does the commentary with him on the oh, nice. uh, Shout Factory DVD. And he asks about, well, you say you're removing the past and not knowing about him. And, and then there's the guy that's stalking the killer, who I think in like behind the mask, they call that uh, an Ahab. Um, yeah. So yeah. Like, like Donald Pleasance <laughs> in Halloween. So yeah. Michael Dick O'Halloran and The Shining. 
who yeah. meets a very similar fate. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he says, so are you sure you don't like horror? And he says, no, I really don't like horror. I haven't seen Halloween. I walked out of Halloween. I've never seen it. <laughs> wow. They scare me. He said, I saw most of Alien, but I had to peek through the theater door to watch it. He said, I don't get the appeal. I think people who make them are sadists. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought That's... that was interesting for a guy who has so much skill with that. Another uh, little side note too that I thought was interesting about this is uh, apparently Garfield talked to Bri or to Michael Winter, who he did Death Wish with, mm -hmm. uh, about this very story when he was doing it, and oh, wow. thought that Michael Winter was going to end up being the director, but Michael Winter did not, and he went off to make another movie instead called Scream for Help, which I've never seen. But the description either. reads, a teenage girl discovers that her stepfather is trying to murder her and her mother. But when she tells people, nobody believes her. Wow. That <laughs> sounds familiar. Yeah. Somebody asked Ruben if he knew about that. He's like, no, but there is no honor in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. So the first major role cast in the film was Jill Sholin as Stephanie, the stepdaughter. Sholin had made her feature film debut a few years earlier in Joel Schumacher's DC Cab, one of his first movies. Hmm. Uh, but then after The Stepfather, she kind of became like a minor scream queen for a few years. She starred in several other cult and horror films, uh, including Dwight Little's Phantom of the Opera, starring Robert England. That was in 1989. Uh, hmm. And Popcorn in 1991, which is a super fun movie. Uh, she would end up retiring from her acting career to be a stay-at-home mother after marrying film composer Anthony Marinelli in 1993. Uh, now, I did also read somewhere that Jennifer Jason Lee had been offered this role and had turned it down, but I wasn't able to verify that anywhere. There wasn't enough nudity in it for her. <laughs> I couldn't find anything about that either, but yeah, Jill Sholin says she liked the darker stuff at the time, and she was just there because work. You know, so no no special story behind that. That she just she just got it. Uh, yeah. I actually love her because I, I I think I saw her on the last drive, and that was the first time I took notice of her. Really, was like for popcorn. I think they did popcorn. Mm -hmm, I fell did. in love with that movie. I watched a bunch of her stuff after that. Uh, I remember at the time I watched like Cutting Class. Yeah, uh, yeah, with Brad Pitt. Yeah, with Brad like, Pitt. Like yeah. one of his first movies, and and her and Brad Pitt actually dated for a while. I did see uh, that. Yeah, after, yeah. After, I was going to mention that. that. It's like I think Chiller I saw was on the Roku channel. But yeah, the wildest part about her to me is that she seemed like she might have been huge at one point. Yeah, like, I know she was up for some big time roles in like the eighties. Besides just horror, which is she did a bunch of horror movies. So apparently, she, a lot of dudes around that time knew her but she dated some studs like she was in babes in toyland with keanu reeves and dated him and then, uh -huh, yeah, man i was obsessed with that movie when i was a kid i loved it too the, yeah. the, the, specifically the keanu reeves yeah version of it like i watched it all the time when i was a kid it was one of those vhs tapes that my my grandmother had at her house and i would just watch it all the time yeah. i loved it i still think about that movie more than most people probably do <laughs> that uh <laughs> Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore is in it too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and the bad guy is the um, I can't remember the actor's name, but he played the dad on the uh, that sitcom Empty Nest. Uh, yeah, he oh, plays yeah. the big like crow guy. He terrified me when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so she's like sixteen and or supposed to be sixteen in the movie. She was already twenty three or twenty four at the time. This was yeah. Done. By time it by time it came out, she was like twenty six or twenty seven, I think. Yeah. So and... she's only like she's only like ten or eleven years younger than the actress that plays her mom. 
yeah it's crazy though she had she had a lot of experience so she was like no new person to all this uh, right and it's so weird to me because it seems like she could have kept going further but she decided to do the the family thing yeah that's what she wanted to do i guess so yeah. also apparently her. did all of her own stunt work too so yeah really that's cool yeah. so in the role of stephanie's mother ruben cast an actress named shelly hack hack had begun her career as a model before moving into acting uh, her first big role was on the tv show charlie's angels uh, but her big breakthrough was in 1983 when she starred in martin scorsese's the king of comedy uh, it was actually her role in that film that helped her land the part in the stepfather um, unsurprisingly her role in troll in 1986 did not have anything to do with it. <laughs> Weird to uh, think Ru about. <laughs> uh, Ruben said that she didn't even have to read for the role. He was just, he was a huge fan of the King of Comedy, thought she was great in it. So he basically just offered her the role in this based on the strength of her performance in that movie. So a uh, fun little uh, side thing here, the King of Comedy, if, if you haven't seen it before, a really cool double feature with King of Comedy is actually uh, the Joaquin Phoenix uh, Joker movie. If you watch those two uh, back to back, uh, there's some fun crossover things. De Niro is in both, and the 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 plot lines are actually kind of similar. It's well, a, I think a lot really of people at feature. the time there were some pieces written yeah. that were saying this movie is ripping off the King of Comedy. Oh, it 100 yeah. is. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it it is 100 Todd. What's his name? The director that Todd movie? Phillips. Todd Phillips is 100 doing a trying to do a Scorsese thing. Yeah. with the joker and he is 100 ripping off the king of comedy i think he's even yeah. said that he was inspired by the king of comedy but yeah, yeah. he it, it it's very much him doing a joker story yeah in the, but ripping off the king of comedy yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> I, I mean i uh when joker was coming out and there were those pieces i was just like you know what let's go back and i actually watched king of comedy first and then went and watched Joker, and which is why I say it makes a great double feature. It's oh, yeah. really fun. So several actors were considered for the titular role of the stepfather. Uh, the production originally considered hiring a big name like a Robert De Niro or a Jack Nicholson type, uh, although I don't think they ever made any real offers to those actors. I can't imagine that this production would have been able to afford them. Mm. Uh, but Terry O'Quinn would ultimately be cast in the role after his audition just Blew everyone away. I mean, he got this through a traditional audition uh, type process, but when he went up there, like everyone was just like, this guy is it. Uh, O'Quinn, prior to this movie, he had been kind of a journeyman actor. He'd appeared in some small supporting roles in film and television, but this was his first lead role in a film. Just Ruben won't say who the other actors were for sure. Like he says there were other name actors that were approached. But, a lot of them didn't want to do it, right? Yeah, he said, I mean, in one of the interviews, he said, well, nobody wanted to play this guy. Every name or semi-name actor we approached turned us down because I guess he was just too bad a guy and they didn't want to play him. So he eventually realized that we were going to have to find somebody. For me, Terry O'Quinn's talent just jumped out at me. He's just one of those actors who cannot give you a false look. It's just talent. You can't explain it. Terry has a ton of talent. He also has this really magnetic smile which I think every good salesman needs. Apparently, <laughs> like in the audition, Terry O'Quinn even did the miming, like making the paper thing, mm. um, the out of the newspaper, the hat or whatever. Yeah. And then he said it blew everybody away. Like Jill uh, Sholin says she was there in Vancouver when he came in to read with her and stuff and just said, uh, all due respect to everybody else. There was just something going on with that guy. Yeah. <laughs> she said everybody <laughs> just knew it. That paper thing, by the way, everybody keeps asking about like, uh, 
in, in the interviews I've seen the apparently in shadow of a doubt by Hitchcock Hitchcock. Yeah. Yeah. There's the killer guy does the same thing. So somebody uh, must've seen that, but nobody yeah, ever sure. cops to it, but I don't know. <laughs> but they said he was so weird. Like uh Ruben says, he was just amazing how he'd be like, not how you think of like some people who are super method, like this guy was just like cracking jokes. He'd like break out an acoustic guitar and like fool around. He'd be like, yeah, singing catering. little folk songs. <laughs> yeah. He'd be fucking around and catering. And then all of a sudden he's just like, boom, he's the fucking killer. All I mean, I sudden. think that's honestly more impressive than somebody who has to walk around in character 24 yeah. hours. Like I think the, the ability to just switch, switch it on is yeah. more impressive to me. There was a, uh, there was you a... know, because I'm, I'm watching a lot of Succession right now, the series finales tonight. Yeah. Uh, as we're recording this, and Jeremy Strong, who is a just phenomenal actor on that show, but he is notoriously method to where like he stays in character, and his character is a, an absolute nightmare person, but he stays like in character in between scenes, and I'm like. Man, I feel like as good as he is, like, wouldn't it be more impressive if they called action and you just turned that on instead of having to live in it? Yeah. And granted, I'm not an actor, so I don't know how hard any of that is. But well, well, like that, you know, most of the other actors in this are like Vancouver based. So they're just like local people they find. But that yeah. Steve Schultz guy uh, who plays the I forget the character's name that's hunting for Jerry the whole time. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, it's Jim something or other. Um he he was he's American, but he was living in Vancouver at the time. But apparently, mm. he was super method. He was like living in his car because that's what this guy would have done and stuff. They said. <laughs> well, it, there's there's one there's one just if I can inject uh, there's this one acting moment that Terry O'Quinn does at the at the party that's in the backyard where he's he's giving that speech and you see him get choked up for a second. I was and to me, I was just like sold. Yeah, done he's, it's he's so such good. a it's such a great moment it's such a great i think it's probably an acting choice but like wow yeah <laughs> yeah he's, great he's moment. good man <laughs> and he, he did apparently do a little bit of research like uh mm. he, he you know he spent several months researching the role uh even i, I saw in, in one place i saw that he even visited a mental hospital to observe patients with multiple personality disorder he also uh, killed his entire family. So that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, he is a, so he is a method actor. Yeah. <laughs> so it was research. It's different. It's not quite the same. Yeah, I, I, I found this quote for him while, while I was researching too. It says, uh, I don't think I could play a character that I couldn't relate to somehow. I'm not unfamiliar with frustration, anger, shame, helplessness, and a load of other emotions that make up our psycho soup. I try to focus on that frustration, that sense of unfairness and multiply it i was like you don't play a character you can't relate to bro the stepfather that's what i thought what i, I was like, come on man but no todd i'm with you on that i mean if we we're going to talk about his acting for just a second the the guy i mean even ruben says for him it was there was the scene um in the basement uh there's one more where he's like go at ape shit in the basement and the dog yeah. sees him and then he like walks through in the dark and he's like back into jerry and like mm -hmm. tried to like bring it back around or mm -hmm. something and he said even the scene was kind of all Terry O'Quinn where like he says the wrong name and then does the famous who am I here? Yeah, He was like, you could see it like something misfired for a second. And he's like, oh, wait, bring it back, bring it back. That's good. But, and I love that for me, it's it's that even that crying scene that you're talking about. For me, everything he does, though, is like it's this weird John Locke is creepy in this way, too, to me. But like he <laughs> he has this weird like it's all acting 
for that character too. Like, right. Yeah. He's just acting like what he thinks. What he thinks that he yeah. should act like as yeah. like a. He has no actual emotion man. towards the thing. He's yeah. just this is what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Putting on appearances, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we've mentioned all of the major characters because there's really only three, four if you count Jim, uh, major characters in this. And like you said, everyone else was kind of a local there in Vancouver because they couldn't afford to you know, bring a bunch of other people from Hollywood in. I will say uh, that this morning I uh, accidentally clicked on, sometimes I get the emails because I don't turn off notifications from next door. I don't know if you guys are on next door. Uh, no, I, I left that uh, long ago. I, I about <laughs> once a month I'll click on there and I couldn't help but think of this movie. I think I had it on the background. I was thinking of that dude hunting for his sister. I was like, can you imagine the post on next door? If this motherfucker guy, was coming up to every house, everything <laughs> that that, everything that he does is so manic like when yeah. he runs into the the uh the bookstore and he's just like knocking stuff <laughs> like over, knocking shit over. <laughs> and like can you imagine the poor people who work in that bookstore like you're just sitting there minding your own business working at the front register and this maniac comes in and just starts knocking things over and like tossing books everywhere and then <laughs> like, he bro and- nobody was those those town and countries were not flying off the shelf right before right. Got here. <laughs> and then the way like he when he gets in his car and starts especially after he finds out that Jerry sells houses you know and he, he has that revelation he gets in his car and he just like he's driving like an insane person like over yeah. sidewalks and like, <laughs> calm down my guy you're gonna crash and die before you get there uh he does have a very O'Halloran storyline though like very much like the O'Halloran character in the shining in the movie of the shining where mm. you think he's going to be the the like guy who bursts in at the, the end day. and saves the day yeah uh, but instead he bursts in and just immediately gets stabbed in the chest <laughs> 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 exactly but the whole, the whole movie he's just like a red herring and yeah. they do the same thing in the shining although it is i'm gonna say arguably but it is definitely done with more finesse in the shining because it's stanley kubrick versus joe rubin i mean not, right. not that against joe rubin but you know stanley kubrick not a lot of people yeah. are. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway that's all of our cast todd which means it's time for you to tell us who we're trekking with this week. Well, folks, uh, the cast is a bit light on a uh, Star Trek alum, but if you ever thought that Terry O'Quinn might make a good Admiral, apparently so did the folks at CBS Paramount because Terry O'Quinn was in season seven, episode 12, Star Trek, the next generation, the episode, the Pegasus from 1994. He played Admiral Eric Pressman. Hmm. Uh, that, that episode is also directed by LeVar Burton, AKA Jordy LaForge. He is the only cast member from this movie who wow. has been on Star Trek. But the interesting thing about that episode, it, it actually encapsulates another episode from Star Trek enterprise. These are the voyages, which is the often maligned final episode but this is the first time in cinema shock history that the lead actor has also been on Star Trek. The closest, oh, really? Yeah, the closest we've gotten so far has been uh, Kirsten Dunst in the Spider-Man movies. Wow, how about yeah. that? We're going to have to do some Shatner movies or something. Yeah, something like or Yeah, something. Uh, <laughs> that's everybody to... on Star Trek. Listen, I'll, I'll cover Kingdom of the Spiders or The Devil's Reign or something. on that. Nice. I, those are probably both on that roulette list, to be honest. <laughs> I was going to say, if they're not, they should be. <laughs> Jill Sholin appeared in like TJ Hooker, so she's a uh, Star Trek. She's got a little adjacent. bit. <laughs> <She's> <laughs> there, yeah. there's, there's a six degrees of, of <laughs> William Shatner thing going on there, I guess. Oh. <laughs> So principal photography on The Stepfather began on October 16th, 1985 in Vancouver. 
you know, producers were a little bit worried about shooting in Canada in the fall, <laughs> but the uh, Vancouver Film Commission assured them that, you know, it never snows this early in the season. You guys will be fine. They wanted it to be in the fall. That's why they wanted to shoot at that time of year. They're shooting in like October, November, because uh, they wanted it to look like your typical, uh, I think it's set in Seattle or somewhere in the, in the Seattle suburbs or you know, yeah. somewhere up there. So they wanted it to look like Pacific Northwest fall, uh, but it's cheaper to shoot in Vancouver. So it being a mild season turned out to be not true. <laughs> it turned out to be very not true. Uh, by, by many accounts, the shoot in Vancouver was cold and miserable. It was raining all the time, and it did actually end up snowing. Uh, you can actually see snow on the streets and some of the backgrounds. Like You see it really specifically in the scene where um, Stephanie and her boyfriend are on the little motor scooter. Mm. Uh, and you can see snow on the street behind them. Uh, but it was, so, so it had to be miserable, like shooting a scene where you're driving on the back of a scooter. Oh, they said they were dying. Yeah. Yeah. It was, like, it freezing. Awful. Uh, but they also, uh, for most of the scenes, they ended up using a snow plow and heaters to melt the snow anywhere that it would have appeared in frame. Obviously they couldn't do that in a driving scene, which is why you can see it in the background of that one. But any other scene where there was snow, they just they got rid of it basically. But aside from the weather issues, uh, the filming largely went off without a hitch and the shoot was completed in about 24 days. I, I was looking around just for the sake of it. Ruben says like 40 and then, Jill said yeah. she was there like six to eight weeks. She can't remember or something yeah, like I've that. Yeah, I've seen multiple. I, I, maybe 24 days was what it was originally supposed to be. Because uh, I've seen 40 in a couple places and 24 in a couple of places. Yeah, it's crazy, though. If you look at the movie, too, like on the, the scene where she's kissing her boyfriend and, you know, he comes out screaming at him. You can see rain all over his jacket, like mm -hmm. when they're there. And apparently it was like hitting the tin above them for the shelter. And it was so loud. They end up having to come back in on a soundstage and redo part of that scene and oh, like yeah. cover, do the, uh, what do they call it? ADR. ADR. Or yeah. yeah. But otherwise he said, I mean, nothing much cut, nothing. We didn't get to shoot that we wanted to. The um, other interesting story I thought was uh, the cinematographer, John Lindley was originally approached to do this movie and he turned it down because he said the timing wouldn't work. He was working on something. I think that was going to wrap on like a Friday and they were going to start on a Monday and he was like in a completely, I think he was like in the U S and mm -hmm. was like, no, this is not, I, I can't do it. Sorry. I appreciate it. But then said a couple of weeks later, they get a call. Or he gets a call and it's like, the director really wants to talk to you. He wants to, it turns out they had apparently hired like another DP and that guy got there on, on the weekend. He went home and uh, got into some kind of domestic uh issue with involved guns and, mm. and so like he was not like, a good look when you're working on this movie specifically yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he said so they were super desperate and uh, yeah so they brought him in he was like fine yeah okay and, yeah, uh, they just needed somebody to to do it because he was not this is only like his second movie i think john lindley but him and joe rubin ended up working together quite a bit after this i believe they work on uh true believer sleeping with the enemy the good son money train uh they work on multiple movies um, yeah so it worked out yeah he he said he loved this kind of movie anyway so he wanted to do it he said it was uh said when i shoot a movie like the stepfather i feel like a, there's a sense of freedom because these aren't like major movies where someone's saying, wait a minute, I paid $20 million for this guy and I need to right. see his face. He said it's yeah. more image driven. There is a lot of dialogue heavy stuff that I get bored with. He said they're just fun 
to do. According to Ruben, he said it was a good shoot, I think. We all basically had a good time making it. It was the first movie I did with John Lindley on the camera, and he and I ended up doing five movies together, which is what we just said. Uh, he said, Michael Still, I met the first AD, and he and I ended up doing seven movies together. It was a tight, cohesive production. The actors were great, had a real good spirit. And I think there was a sense that we didn't know if we were making a good movie, but we had a sense that we were making an interesting movie, an interesting movie that was a little different for this kind of thriller, one with some fun, subversive ideas underneath it. Uh, the search for the perfect all-American family, achieving that Norman Rockwell safe, nothing bad could ever happen in this kind of town look was interesting to all of us. I, th I just thought that was interesting what they were going for. I guess we should also mention in production too, the uh, music's done by uh, Patrick Mraz. This was his first U.S. score. He was... Uh, in the Moody Blues, artist. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was in the Moody Blues. Uh, he was also in Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like he was keyboardist on songs like Nights in White, White Satin, Owner of a Lonely Heart. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bill Orr was on Makeup Effects, I think, and that guy's done a lot of stuff. I got other fun facts if you want to hear them real yeah, quick. I love fun facts, Gary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> these are just ones I thought were interesting. Uh, they actually used three houses for the house uh, because they wanted this claustrophobic feel. So the, the interiors never worked perfectly. So they used three different houses interiors to make the one house that's fun um, <laughs> they got they wrote themselves into a corner when she's trapped in the bathroom and he's trying to get in doing the little shining scene there too yeah um, mm -hmm. but uh it's really more of it turns into more of like a freddy scene there when he ends up bursting through the mirror that's a yeah. very like freddy krueger entrance i believe well <laughs> it's funny you say that because they they said that um they were there and everybody was kind of like wait a minute now she's in here if he gets through this door she's fucked like what yeah. <laughs> we're supposed to do and uh it was the producer guy we mentioned earlier i forgot his name already he said Jay benson uh, yeah benson he said uh you know in my house we had a floor to ceiling mirror there so like if it broke when he came through she could get some glass and stab him or something and yeah that's what they did so that's how <laughs> that's... that went after the very first scene you know after he walks out of his murderized house mm -hmm. uh he was whistling the way we were by uh barbara streisand, barbara streisand? Yeah. yeah but uh wow. then found out that they could not afford for him to be doing that so they went <laughs> with camp, camp down races yeah <laughs> which uh, is definitely in the in the public domain yeah exactly this is just a stupid one but did you know that almost the entire cast of this movie also has at one point appeared on the x-files oh wow <laughs> terry o'quinn terry o'quinn Stephen E. Miller, Lindsay Bourne, Anna Hagen, Jillian Barber, Jackson Davies, Gabriel Rose, Richard Sargent. It's like well, literally they shot, everybody. They shot the X-Files in Vancouver. So that would oh, make that's sense. interesting because, yeah, Ruben <laughs> says, like, uh, if you're an actor in Vancouver, you were getting work. Like, yeah. That was, yeah. That was just they the shoot a lot of TV up there. But, uh, yeah, I think the majority of the X-Files was shot in Vancouver. Oh, Jill Schillens claimed that she was so disturbed from the final violent act that she had recurring nightmares for a week about mm -hmm. being chased by Terry O'Quinn. <laughs> so that must be nice. <laughs> I uh, I learned a new term here. And Justin, I know that you probably already knew this, but this is my final little thing because we've mentioned Hitchcock and, and nobody would cop to shadow of a doubt. But this director mentions Hitchcock a lot. But he mentions in the movie at one point, uh, Gingold asked him, hey, I had a question. When he's on the ferry, he's like changing into a new look to go out to the new town to do his mm -hmm. thing and set it up. And then he comes back and he changes into his old look to go back home, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. like, I thought that was so cool. Except what's weird is like, 
how did the bearded version do that same thing? Like, what did he do? Like to to get like you know switches a uh, complete look or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, maybe uh, he started. Maybe he started with a fake beard and then eventually grew a new a real one. <laughs> Ruben says that's what we call, or he said that's what Hitchcock called icebox logic, and he was like basically Hitchcock had a term for that where it's the thing that like. You don't think about it at the time until like 2 a.m. when you go to get a right. drink out of the fridge or whatever. And you're like, wait a minute. Wait a second. <laughs> but I thought that was kind of interesting. It, yeah, he also cool. references him again just for the sake of it. He He's talking about how like, you know, you know, at the beginning of the movie, this guy's a killer. So it's like no suspense there or no mystery there. You're just waiting for them to figure out. And he's like, well, that's that's another like, Hitchcock thing. He's like where the guys are sitting in the bar. If a bomb goes off, he's like, well, then you got to jump. He's like, but if the guys are sitting in the bar and you know there's a bomb, now it's suspense. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a big Hitchcock thing. Yeah. So in the fall of 1986, New Century Vista Film Corporation, which was a new company that was started by Norman Levy, the former chair of 20th Century Fox Film Corporation, they purchased the distribution rights to The Stepfather. And uh, they, they had a few test screenings. Test screenings were generally pretty positive. And the film opened in limited release in Southern California in January of 1987. And reviews from critics were mostly positive. Uh, but even so, even with good reviews out in Los Angeles, uh, audiences stayed away. So I have to wonder, you know, in the ensuing years, what has this been, 30, 35 years or so since this movie came out? Mm-hmm. Uh I'm sure folks on the internet have all just just heaping praises upon this film, right, Gary? Well, there are definitely some people on the internet, Justin, that if I was their daddy, I'd make them take a nap. <laughs> really wish you didn't say daddy. <laughs> wish, wish we could have phrased that differently. I guess I should have said father. Maybe it's less creepy. I don't know. <laughs> uh, this is a uh, rose by another name. Unbelievably stupid and over cruel. Zero stars. That's the title of the review. So spoiler alert for the review. Oh. <laughs> uh, it says, uh, how could any woman be that blinded dumb? It frustrated me that everyone except the daughter and the murderer was stupid. An overdone cliché. Wish I didn't watch this. Did you say cliché? It's a C L I C H E T. Cliché. Cliché. They're just making up words. That, that's a, <laughs> it's a small it's a small cliché. <laughs> <laughs> but it can't it's an overdone cliché. That 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 feels like an overdone cliché. So you it's when you try to get a cliché to a full cliché you end up overusing it. <laughs> That's that's how that goes. We're overusing this joke. No. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Available right. for parties, bar mitzvahs, corporate events. Uh, Jameson. Uh, this is from IMDb. One out of five stars. Review title. Worst film ever. Yeah! <laughs> hey. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I have no idea why this appeared as a movie I might like on Amazon Prime. I like my British mysteries like Vera and Shetland, but this was crap. <laughs> so so specific. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. It still goes on. I put a pause there. He says, uh, this is the worst film I've ever seen. Beating out Ishtar, Caveman, Made in America, and Ghibli. 
the music is awful. The acting was worse. The worst kid in my seventh grade acting class. The world is bad enough without having to see people and pets shot and slashed to death. I think you have to be pretty sick to enjoy this garbage. First off, the pets, the dog doesn't get killed unless there was a dead one at the beginning or something. Yeah, I don't think the dog. What does happen to that dog? It just runs to meet her and then a lot of chasing happens. But yeah, you're right. The dog figured dog would get in the middle of some of that or something. I don't know. He's he's fine. Yeah. Did they ever ever give that dog? I honestly thought he was going to kill the dog. Yeah, I mean, and it leads you to that. And it's actually kind of like some black comedy that they put in there, I feel like, because like he just like he gets the dog that he kind of forgets what he's doing for a while and just like plays <laughs> with the dog. Yeah, I mean, the dogs have that effect on people. I, I do like when they first bring the dog, that that little line that the mom has where where uh, he says that, Jerry says, you know, I, he doesn't have a name yet. And she says something like, uh, well, names don't really matter anyway, do they? And it's a great little nod to obviously his character. They do right. some really good like dark comedy in this, and and it, like the only overt thing is finally when he kills, what's his face, like stabs him, and he's like the doctor, or uh, oh, no, oh, the, the, uh, the brother, Jim. the brother, Jim. where he's yeah. like, no, remember, call before you just drop by. Yeah, and it's like oh, <laughs> now you got your uh, oh, there you Freddy get, joke. You're in doing some Freddy jokes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Benjamin says half star movies like this are why people have such punitive views on criminal justice. They spend so much time with these over the top psychopaths. They will do anything to be protected from them or rather to feel protected. Doesn't matter that the system almost never touches these folks to the extent that they exist at all. God, I hate movies like this. there's something else going on there yeah that person's not really upset about the movie bro you took this into a different direction you're projecting i think uh let's see palor show us on the doll show us on the doll where the justice system touched you uh half star uh and this is going to come up in a minute so we can dive deeper into this but uh palor Half star, really gonna put an actress playing a 16-year-old girl naked in your movie like that, huh? Fuck men, they all shit. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, she was like 25 when she filmed this. So yeah, and, and I've got a quote from her about this that I was gonna bring up because uh next review is from Jonathan, who gives it a half star and said it would have been a hell of a good movie, but the directors made the 16-year-old character show her tatas. <laughs> uh Luke gave it one star. You can't deny this movie understood the scariest thing ever is a random middle-aged man living in your house and dating your mom. My mom's boyfriend is some loser who's very kind and extremely genuine and has definitely become family to me and also inspires me all the time to be more creative and confident as a person because he's so artistic. But I still think, huh, what if he's been faking for years and is actually going to kill us one day? Ladies, never let an unrelated grown man live in your house. Men are innately untrustworthy and terrifying, and they should never be normalized. Men should not be normalized, <laughs> just in general. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to argue that, but uh, uh, that person also seems to be projecting a little bit. Uh, one star from Tina. This is the last one. She says, after watching this together circa 1989, my then best friend was absolutely convinced that another friend's dad was a real-life version of the stepfather and would eventually slaughter his family if he hadn't already slaughtered another family at some point in the past. They moved to the suburbs in the 90s, and nobody in our friend group has heard from them since. So maybe she was right. (laughs) (laughs) 
Cage. Oh yeah, and there's a movie too. Like, oh uh, man, I think some of these people just need uh, to sign off of IMDb and uh, go to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that oh. scene. Uh, there were a lot of reviews, and I only stuck two of them in there that are about Jill Sholin getting naked in this movie a lot of people mm. upset with this i mean i get that um, she's playing an underage person but she is not an underage person she is well past the age of consent yeah like, she makes very clear i found this interview with her uh the rock stop with chris contra uh it's on youtube and uh she does a long interview with him like an hour and but they talk about this at one point in there and you know she makes very clear i was 23 at the time i was you know not underage and she said she said don't quote me she said she quote said don't quote me quote which i'm doing uh but she said i don't think you can even do that now i don't think you can have an actress portray a underage person naked on the screen but i don't know if that's true or not either. i don't think that's true yeah yeah so maybe she's wrong um but i mean she... the entire uh tv series euphoria would not exist if that were the case <laughs> oh good point <laughs> Um, she said, you know, he, he did ask were you comfortable during this? And her quote is, you know, I really wasn't. And, and that was the only movie I'd ever been naked in. I remember though, talking to the director about it and he talked me into why there was importance to it. I get that it wasn't about the sex. I mean, it may have been for, I don't know, people out there who like that kind of food, but it just makes it so much scarier that she's there with nothingness, just as innocent as can be taking a shower. And there's no idea that, you know, this man has just like practically killed her mother or beaten her. And he's sitting there with a knife and about to come in after her. I mean, the, the vulnerability of her character in that scene is important to the finale, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to show the nudity. I mean, there there have been thousands of shower scenes in movies where you don't actually see anything. <laughs> the point yeah. is still getting would, that was going to be exactly what yeah. I said too. Not yeah. that I'm like complaining about the scene, you know. No. <laughs> but, but I mean, that's that's not a strong argument for it <laughs> right. for it being right. there. You know what I mean? I'm just saying, I like naked girls, but yeah, I I'm mean... not going to like complain that it's there. <laughs> But it's just, uh, I get it, you know, it's a, uh, she is, she's supposed to be 16. So it's a little weird there. Yeah. Oh, sure. Unless you, unless you like us, you have done the research and you know that she isn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, was, yeah, yeah, exactly. No. But I mean, typically if you see that in a movie, you're hopefully you're assuming that they are of age. I was curious what she thought about it. So that's why I was looking for it. And, uh, the, uh, it's interesting. Like, I mean, I don't know. If, if that's a regular thing she's done since then or not, but it sounds like she was kind of iffy on it, but they convinced her with that logic. But like yeah. you said too, I was also like, yeah, but you don't kind of show anything, you know? Right. Yeah. You can show the, like the, the robe drop next to the feet, somebody stepping in and then the, you, you've got that shot from like the shoulder up kind of thing that you see in a bunch right. of movies, you right. know, you don't actually see anything. So yeah, it's not, not a very sound argument, but uh, you know, it is. Well, it, was, it happened. <laughs> I was wondering about the the nudity when juxtaposed with you know you've got your lead actor who's who's also nude in it. For well, Terry I mean, O'Quinn was split, completely split different. Second. They said he walked in. It was like I need to get my balls out at some point. <laughs> how do I do this? How do I how do I fling some dick out on screen? Uh, <laughs> Harry showed up on set nude again. <laughs> Does this house have a shower? I will be using it. Get a camera in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
New Century tried several different advertising campaigns when the movie was being uh, being released, trying to sell the film as a, an adult psychological thriller, uh, which mm. is what it is, you know. But after being in release for six weeks, the film had grossed just one point three million dollars. Uh, so finally, New Century tried a new advertising campaign where they were trying to sell the movie as a slasher film aimed at a younger audience which is not exactly what the movie is, uh, but moviegoers still stayed away from it. And because of its mediocre box office performance, the film was never granted a full wide release. I don't get the impression even the director likes how it was marketed. It, it seemed to felt like it leaned a lot into the horror thing. And, you know, they they talk about it a little in the commentary. The new Century Vista didn't know how to sell it, just like what you're talking about there. I, I think uh, Michael Gingold said it went through like four different ad campaigns in different territories and, Nothing with the stick. Um, nothing with stick. They they said that what was weird too with it, you know, is it did that LA screening and then it didn't come out in New York. They were anticipating it coming out in New York in like May. And then Nightmare on Elm Street 3 was coming out at the same time when it was originally planned. So they pulled it and they kept postponing it and postponing it. Hmm. Um, but there's a film critic from the Village Voice named David Edelstein who reviewed it, uh, I guess, at one of those early screenings and loved it and yeah. he wrote a whole piece and uh started kind of a campaign uh in the village voice about you need to bring this movie to new york and show it to people and the director also credits uh pauline kale uh for also putting it over and talking yeah. really nicely about it that got it some notice but uh well, she wrote for the new yorker so yeah okay so that makes sense so they were like going for it with that and they finally did they said they were waiting for it in may and it finally came out i think they said like june or something like that um, but then, uh, Edelstein wrote another little piece on it and, uh, and it, he had a quote that says, the, this now makes me a cog in a marketing machine that I despise. I'll feel <laughs> guilty about it after you go see this movie. He just wanted people to see a movie <laughs> that he thought was good, which I like that, you know, and there were, uh, like I said, there were a lot of really good reviews. So I'm not sure why the, the movie had a hard time getting in front of audiences. I think, you know, the marketing, I thought, I think the poster for this movie where it's him in front of the mirror where it says, and it says, who am I here written like in the steam yeah. uh, on the mirror. I think that's a fantastic poster. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really great. So I'm not sure exactly what happened or it just wasn't hitting the right demographics or, or, or what, or maybe it seemed too much of like a thriller to people who wanted to see a slasher or maybe people thought it looked too much of a slasher who didn't like slasher movies. Maybe they didn't quite know. Cause it's kind of like this in between ground. Cause it does kind of turn into a slasher movie in like the last act. Yeah. Really. Uh, regardless of what Joe Rubin might want it to, to seem like it. I mean, he, it does turn into a slasher movie for the last like 20 minutes of the movie. So mm -hmm. maybe they just had a hard time finding that middle ground of who to, to who to market it towards. But, you know, even, even though most of the reviews were pretty positive, even the negative ones that it received, couldn't help but praise the work of Terry O'Quinn, who, you know, he was a relative unknown at the time. Uh, Roger Ebert gave the film 2.5, two and a half out of four stars. Roger Ebert, notoriously anti-horror movie. I mean, he, he does like them on occasion, but 90% of the time, I feel like he gives a horror movie a, a negative review, especially like slasher movies. Mm. But in his review, he wrote, Violence itself seems to sell at the box office, even when it's divorced from any context. Maybe that's what the filmmakers were thinking. What often happens, though, is that in an otherwise flawed film, there are a couple of things that are wonderful. The stepfather has one wonderful element, 
Terry O'Quinn's performance. So even in his negative re- review, he couldn't help but say, Terry O'Quinn is awesome, though, in this. Um, and I do think that, you know, I think the stepfather, I think it's pretty good. I think it's a good little thriller. I, I also love, like, domestic thrillers like this. I love this this genre mm. of movie in general. Um, it, you know, sometimes this, it feels a little bit like a Lifetime movie uh, here and there. You know, yeah. it, it really yeah, does. Like, plot-wise, plot this is the kind of movie that you see on Lifetime, like, every weekend. Uh, but I think that it's... Terry O'Quinn's performance, honestly, that elevates like the entire movie. Yeah. Uh, because his, his performance, we've talked about it multiple times already, but it's very nuanced. Like you can see the wheels turning. You can see him go in and out of that persona, you know, multiple times throughout the movie. And it's really impressive, I think. And he is just very charismatic and very magnetic to yeah. watch. Uh, it's, it's a shame, honestly, that he never became like a full leading man. Obviously he's had a great career, especially because of lost, but um, he never was like a leading man. And it's probably because he does, he kind of, look, he looks like a dad. <laughs> like, you know, he just yeah. does. Uh, he looks like a dad. So I get, he was never going to be like a leading man, but I feel like he could have had like a real character actor movie career. Mm. And, his, and yeah. most of his like success as an actor seems to have been in the realm of television. Yeah. 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 But I mean, and he, I mean, with that, he also seems like a really nice guy. I actually found a quote here uh, with him talking about the stepfather and the stepfather was the first time I sort of carried a film or led in a film and doing it was fun. And I felt very special afterward though. I was terrified. I just thought, wow, this is basically going to be about me. If this film is a success or a failure, a lot of it's on me. They released the film just here and there and now and then, and it got critical acclaim, but it was never much of a success in terms of box office. A lot of people watched it after the fact. It's sort of a cult thing. I still have people mention that to me from time to time. The fact that he was like, you know, the idea of I sort of carried a film or, Mm -hmm. you know, and or or led in a film, He, he even hesitates to call himself a lead actor like right he, he's he, he's got that humility that makes me want to share a beer with the guy he seems like yeah a really i mean cool i guy <laughs> i know people who have met him because he he does the uh there's a local celebrity golf tournament here in town that happens yeah. about once a year and he plays in it um and we've we've got friends who have like our well our friend michelle gary she yeah. you know she she's worked that event uh, a few times and got to hang out with him and and everyone that I know that's met him. I, I know probably four or five people who have met him through that and just say, he's just the nicest and most down to earth dude like him. And it's him and the guy who plays Kevin on the office. Who's a part of that same tournament. That everyone just talks about how nice they are when they come into town. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That's uh, he's, he's so good. And it's, it's weird that he doesn't do more because he's not, you know, he's not in any of the special features on the DVD. Like yeah. He doesn't, you don't find many interviews with him i was looking like he doesn't talk about it a ton um he, it's just a job he had yeah, yeah i was gonna say 35 years ago work yeah <laughs> yeah and uh i don't know it's just strange but i i i think it's him i will say this that i do think that this the script the the movie making process in this is really good like it's above it's above like standard movie fair yeah i mean i think the cinematography is outstanding i i really i think the it's very atmospheric especially when Mm. you get into like 
like that that opening scene and the the stuff in the basement with the backlighting and stuff and that and in that whole finale oh, like they it's, use it's very um, atmospheric they do this like black and red thing like he always and i think the director even says this in the commentary said so i don't want to stay for him he said we tried to save red for jerry because he'll have like red ties on or he wears like a red and not mm, i was gonna say red, red blood all over his face <laughs> yeah red blood yeah. All over his face. <laughs> there's a scene though where he comes up where he's like uh uh, I think it may be when he's looking at the other family, like when he's starting to find a new life or something, yeah. and he walks in front of like a tree that also has like orange leaves or whatever, like really dark colored, like bright leaves. And yeah. uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, they I don't know where that was shot at because they talked about in Vancouver, you know, it wasn't like that. They had to like, or there uh, maybe there were trees. They said they had like literally guys in trees, like shaking trees to make leaves fall to down. make the leaves fall. Yeah. Especially yeah. at the that scene at the beginning where you kind of see them fluttering down in the street. Speaking of which the, the scene where you first, I think it's the scene where you first meet the wife and daughter where they're playing in the leaves in the backyard. Mm-hmm. That is an absurd amount of leaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like it is. It is like get like just hundreds of gallons of leaves. It is back too much, <laughs> too many leaves. Uh, also, if you look back on it, they, he did tell this one stupid story that it just thought of was when when that family is coming out of or the dad's getting home and he's getting out of his car and he walks in and the little girl waves to Jerry or whatever and he waves mm-hmm. back. But during that scene, when he first gets out of the car, the dad and the family's waiting for him. They've got a dog there, and the dog, if you watch it like runs at him but just keeps going they said (laughs) and they said we could not get him to go to that actor the the dog was never seen again so we just had to go with it they were like that dog just took off like (laughs) uh so you guys um had had y'all seen i know gary you saw this when joe bob did it probably right oh yeah yeah but had you seen this before todd was this a first time watch for you yeah this was a first uh this was a first viewing from what'd you think I, I was excited about it because I love Terry O'Quinn. Yeah. I mean, I remember him from all, you know, besides Lost, I always think, I, I still always think of him as uh, Howard Hughes from Rocketeer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, a bunch of other things. As you, he, he is one of those who's kind of, he, he does kind of straddle that line between like leading man, but mostly character actor. So if mm-hmm. you scroll through, you would just be like, oh, yeah. And he was in that thing. Oh, and he was in this. Oh, no. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. So there's a lot of that. But I was just excited to see Terry because, I mean, he looks like a kid in this. Uh, yeah, except well, for the hairline. Kid, like, yeah, except for the <laughs> hairline. Uh, let me rephrase. He, he looks, you know. Younger. Looks like he's, you know, mid-30s, which he probably was. But yeah. um, it's it's just it was just wild to see him. And I always, you know, remember, again, Howard Hughes and John Locke from Lost. You know, you kind of see him in those more not necessarily antagonistic roles, more supporting or protagonist. And mm-hmm. to. I always love to I always love to see actors who are known for the one thing do the switch. Uh, well, the great thing about when he played John Locke is that you never know. Right. You, right. What, what you never know if he's a good guy or bad guy or, you know, the, I was going to say that he's so good at that. Yeah. The beautiful part with him is it's like those eyes, like something about his eyes, like there's yeah. always something else happening behind mm-hmm. his eyes. Like yeah. you're never sure. So he's just so perfect for a role like this. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to give props real quick too that I was noticing this time watching the last time I watched it through. Uh, I, I mentioned the script, but like the, I love like how fast it moves. Like I, I think it it, oh, yeah. it just bounces like along and it flicks between scenes. It's like a, really an quick hour and, and twenty eight minutes long, and it just like moves at a great pace. 
There's even the cool mm-hmm. stuff with like the 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 guy looking for his sister goes up to the one house to find out that the dude, you know, he's got the picture, but the, mm-hmm. the couple's having a fight, like they're getting yeah. they're separate. Yeah. And I'm like, what a weird way to get some uh exposition, exposition. out. Yeah, but they did it. But I was <laughs> but, like, that's yeah. an interesting little way to do that. But it's it a, kind it of so a smart way to do it without yeah. it, yeah, without it just feeling like somebody's explaining plot points to you. Yeah, uh, it's pretty clever. I mean, the, it's a pretty clever screenplay in general i mean i guess having donald westlake you know a a very uh, seasoned writer work Mm. on it uh, probably had a lot to do with that but i I really like i one thing i don't think this movie it it has in recent years started to get credit for this but it's really um almost like a satire uh of like that mid 80s american values kind of thing you know But, but like jerry blake this this character it's so well written because he he doesn't you don't get a lot of background mm-hmm. on him. You know, he he's clearly had a traumatic childhood, which as as we mentioned, Ruben wisely chose to not show in the film. Uh which I, I think was a great decision, honestly. But there's something obviously that's happened where he's had a messed up childhood, and his idea of like what a perfect family is is the what he's seen on television, watching shows like Mr. Ed and probably leave it to beaver and stuff like that or or what he sees in norman rockwell paintings you know he's got like this idea of what a perfect family should be and obviously whatever his family looked like as a child was not that so he only saw it from the outside and he's kind of working to create that for himself Mm -hmm. Uh, but he's also like got this very rigid way of thinking because he's 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 trying to act like what he thinks a good father and good husband should act like you know, which leads to these like freakouts that he has in the basement every now and then, you know, because yeah. things aren't living up to his what what his standards of what they should be. He even uh, says in that basement freakout, just by the way, you know, they, they mentioned cutting out the the uh, him getting locked in a basement thing. But it's interesting. He does go down to the basement a lot. That's his like spot. And there's right. a one part where in one of those he's like screaming, like, let me out, let me out or something like mm-hmm. that. So you can tell yeah. it's still like in there's the something going on. Bit. Um, but I like but, that there are just like hints of it there instead. But I mean, his, his way of looking at a family though is like, well, f- those those things don't exist. Like the families that that you're seeing on Leave It to Beaver every week that there's no mm-hmm. that has no base in reality. Like families, even good families that are good and have are filled with good relationships, they're still chaotic. Uh, you know, there there is no such thing as a perfect family. But that that chaos that comes along with having like a teenage daughter or whatever, that is not something he's willing to accept. He thinks everything should be picture perfect. I read a really, uh, a really great write-up about this film by Scott Tobias back when he was writing for the AV club. Uh, and he said, he he called, I, I wanted to include this because I, this quote, just like when I saw it, it was one of those like l- lightning bolt to the brain moments for me. Mm, uh, mm. But he said, he described the stepfather as a, he says, it's basically the night of the hunter, except instead of religion, Jerry preaches the gospel of Reaganism. Uh, <laughs> and that's such a good point that I would not have thought of otherwise. Um, um, I love the night of the hunter. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, it's an incredible film. If you haven't seen it, uh, I know Gary's seen it. Because again, we, it on the we did show. it on the old show, yeah. yeah. And I, I would, I would love to do it. Again. That's one that should be a roulette uh, episode because you can't do a series on it because the guy only directed one. Charles Lawton only directed the one movie, but uh, it's an outstanding film. But it really does. If you when when I saw that quote, I started thinking about. it. I was like, it does have a lot of parallels with the stepfather, uh, because just like Robert Mitchum's preacher character in that film, uh, Jerry 
Blake kind of inserts himself into a widow's life with the promise of a kind of a clear moral vision for their future. Uh, the widows in both films don't question his motives, but the children see right through his bullshit. But, you know, kids, as they always do in these types of movies, don't have any credibility, so nobody will listen to them. Uh, and and Mitchum and Jerry Blake even both have their own little signature song. You know, uh, Mitchum sings Leaning on the Everlasting Arms throughout that whole movie and makes it super creepy. Right. Uh, whereas Jerry whistles Camp Town Races, which is admittedly less creepy, but still, <laughs> he, he still has his own kind of signature little tune, uh, which I think is really cool. But I, I do like that idea of... um jerry preaching the gospel of reaganism because i think if you if you think of it in that light uh if you look at where america was in the mid to late 80s you know it's it starts to you you see this movie in a whole different light Mm -hmm. if you start thinking about it that way because reaganism i i when i was researching this i even looked up uh, i even looked up the transcript for for ronald reagan's uh he did this like christmas address the end of 1986, I think it was about mm. about family values, American values, traditional family values, uh, and that's what Reaganism. That's what it was all about. You know, Ronald Reagan and and the people who followed him and voted for him, they hoped to get back to the 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 good old days. You know, uh, which in their case meant the old fashioned 1950s America, but it was a it was really an America that never really existed to begin with. Like the idea of the good old days, the mm. like the good old days were also fucked up. Like every, yeah. <laughs> like they always were. Uh, you just choose to not remember that. You're blinded by nostalgia. But Jerry Blake is kind of a perversion of those family values. You know, he'll do anything to maintain his perfect picture perfect family even if it means he has to kill them and move on and try again like wipe the <laughs> wipe the slate clean like uh, let's uh, let, i get a mulligan on this one i'm just gonna murder this family and move on <laughs> to the next one the uh, problem's never him though it's never him nope it's always the family and th- but that that's kind of what's scary about him is that he's not like he's not like jason Voorhees. he's not just hacking and slashing his way through a bunch of random people with no rhyme or reason he is a like purposeful killer he has a reason yeah. to kill like he yeah. to him he's doing the right thing and that yes. makes him oh even scarier because yeah. to him like this is he's the good guy of his own story uh-huh. you know uh so that's just like that's fascinating to me and the thing about this watching it now and i watched it again this morning watching it now with this idea of of, of it being this movie kind of having a critical eye towards Reagan era politics, this idea of returning to tradition. Um, I think it still works really well today because we haven't moved very far past that. Uh, We still have boomers who are pining for like the good old days and this idea of like keeping things the way they were is often just an excuse to not be inclusive of anyone who isn't like you or ideas that are different from your own. It's it's essentially a fight against progress, which is exactly what Jerry Blake is doing. He can't stand the idea of like his daughter acting out or just like John List couldn't stand the idea of his daughter wanting to become an actress because mm-hmm. that's just not what uh, a good Christian girl should do. You know, right. but the, the fact is that like change is inevitable. Usually it's a good thing. Usually it'll lead to, it can lead to good things, you know, because you can learn from your past mistakes to make things better in the future, which isn't possible if you're stuck and intent on living in the good old days, which is why like Jerry Blake is just going to continue to do the same shit over and over again, because no family that he meets is ever going to meet like his 
idea of what a perfect family should be because they literally don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> well, not to mention nowadays, you know, you get even like all the, well, we don't have to get into everything that's assaulting the traditional family, you know, right. like the way that the world is supposed to work. Right. But that's, sides. that's, a, that's why this is still kind of relevant now is because people are still seeing things that way. Like this is not what a traditional family should look like. Right. It's like, it, it might be a little different than the way they were thinking it in 1985, but it's the same line of thinking you know what i mean Uh, and it's so weird because i feel like also i mean not to this extent so i'm not telling you that everybody that feels this way is going out to murder people hopefully right you're right obviously this is an extreme example but he's even like (laughs) i I don't know i just think about the scenes like where he's watching mr ed and he's laughing along to mr ed and then blah blah blah. then the wife comes in he's like oh now i have sex (laughs) this is what we do yeah yeah, (laughs) you're also just going through the motions this is not really like you're not feeling this this is just like a there's no real passion or love behind it it's just like this is what i'm supposed to do as a husband and father mm-hmm. this is what this is how i'm supposed to act uh yeah i mean that it goes back to that scene with them on the um the front steps the 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 boyfriend and the daughter kissing where he just immediately jumps to this kid's trying to rape my daughter and you're going to go to jail. She's 16 years old. And the kid's like, so am I. <laughs> you know, it's very much this someone jumping to like the, the absolute worst conclusion about somebody else. Yeah. You know? Anyway. Um, um, also, I, I don't feel like that. Uh, I, I just had to mention and if I'm sorry if you weren't through with your point, but uh, uh, Paul who is searching for his sister, by the yeah. way, everybody says in lots of these reviews that he is useless. And I would just like to point out the clip that the clip, the script is too clever for that because he does provide the gun that is there at the end of the movie. And he, even yep. though he is dead, there is still the gun that the mother uses to halt Jerry. And, uh, and honestly, just to live. That's the only, because he does that is the only reason that you can't cut that character out of this movie, because otherwise you could completely cut him out of the movie and it would mm. not change a thing really. <laughs> right. Right. But uh, I mean, you, I you get a little clear that up. I was like, oh, he's like, he wasn't completely worthless. Yeah. He he's does, mostly he's there worthless, with the gun. <laughs> he doesn't help much. <laughs> he just provides the gun. The other thing I was looking at and, uh, you know, I saw that there were some sequels and stuff like this. I don't know about you guys, but in looking at all the different elements of this narrative, the relationship between the daughter and the therapist, the relationship between, um, Jerry and his wife, and of course, Jerry's background uh, with the previous family, not to mention his childhood. Then you've got the brother, you've got the reporter, you've got the cop who who's just like, yeah, blow him away. If you get the chance, blow yeah. him away. Um, as I was looking at all of these things, I was just like, man, I could spend more time with these, with each of these elements. And I think this narrative could go a lot deeper Um I was there. Did they ever develop this for a series? Because I think like this could be a I've, fun of like a fun like HBO miniseries or like no. A, I I thought the like same that. thing though. Like watching this, I mean, there's definitely like elements that could play out as like a like a like a long form series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. hell, you could even do it where like he gets away at the end of season one and starts off up with a new family in season yeah. two or something. You know, I thought about that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it could definitely be done for sure. Cause I thought the same thing, like it, it does have potential for like a, like a long form series. I think uh, yeah. I, I do love that you see him 
he's so good at changing his appearance and he mm-hmm. he's like clearly that movie at the that, that family at the beginning of the movie was not the first family that he murdered yeah. because he's too yeah. good at at moving on and and yeah. and like he he just slips into a new character like that you know he gets a new job he, he changes his appearance and it's i mean he he obviously knows what he's doing to the point where this ain't his first rodeo or a second well, rodeo the, yeah <laughs> that was the thing was like in looking at everything that jerry does throughout the movie you see that there are some things where like oh he has clearly done this before he's mm-hmm. very you know he's prepared he's well thought out but then there's other times where it's just like how did you how did you miss this detail so there's yeah. there's times where he's really on top of his game there's other times that make you think oh he's is this up. his for yeah yeah so well like, he's still oh. crazy yeah, he's yeah, still yeah. crazy. So um, <laughs> the one thing yeah, I do I remember that. now that you guys were talking about a lot of this, uh, that they, you know, you, you mentioned him being able to slip into the next thing, and it is wicked. Like that opening scene is just perfect, where he walks through all the dead bodies and mm-hmm. then walks up behind himself and picks up the paper and you know just like moves on, yep. and uh, and it's wicked because he just walks out on the street and keeps going and he's whistling, but. There's one scene that they is kind of similar to that that I wish they would have been able to do, but Ruben said they did have the idea. They ran out of time. They were going to do a crane shot during where he's trying to bust in the bathroom and she gets to the window and she's screaming for help. They had the idea for the crane shot out there of her leaning out the window screaming for help. And then it starts panning back and there's just like neighbors mowing their yard and just like nobody paying attention. That would have been cool. And that's, I was like, Man, that's a wicked idea. What a great shot. <laughs> that's good. That well, would have been cool. All right. I think we're to the point where uh, it's time to talk about further viewing for this one. This is a, this is a fun one to do a double feature with, I think, because there's a, there are a lot of directions you could go. You could go slasher movie. You could go with another domestic thriller kind of thing. Um, you could go with sequel. You could do with another Joseph Rubin movie uh, because a couple of his, especially right after this really, uh, are similar genres. So where did you guys go with a double feature with this one? There was one movie I found on Pornhub that was really <laughs> oh, the stepmother. The stepmother. <laughs> it's about this. It's about this lady who gets her hand stuck in the washing machine. It's about this lady who like, she's a lot, she, she, you know, she married a much older man. So she's pretty close <laughs> in age to the, to her stepson's age. <laughs> right. <laughs> And now, you know, we've all seen it. So uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just guessing. I don't. <laughs> has, we... has has Corey Chase been, been in Star Trek? <laughs> I mean, let me look that up. <laughs> oh, man. Now you got into actress names. So now you've really, <laughs> really shown your hand to, to, in a sense. I don't um, want to see your hand, actually. <laughs> um <laughs> I guess I'll go first since I'm talking too much anyway. I would say I have three. Two of them are movies that uh, Joe Rubin and John Lindley go on to do together anyway, and it's Sleeping with the Enemy or The Good Son. Mm-hmm. Both those deal with families and wickedness in the families. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the original first one I thought of before I realized they did those two movies was uh, Orphan from 2009. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that that's a, a, lot that's a good one. Did you ever see the sequel to that? I did, and it's Man, also it's, awesome. It's really good. It's really good. How about you, Todd? Well, I actually, um, the first thing that jumped to mind was The Good Son, um, but I that's too easy. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, excuse the fuck out of me. I mean, I thought of it, too. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I, the first ones I thought of were Sleeping with the Enemy and The Good Son for the same reason, because same director, same cinematographer, and 
the same genre essentially which is a family domestic thriller kind of thing and also i loved the good son when i was a kid because like i'm about the same age as macaulay culkin uh he's a, i think he's a few months older than me uh i was a little blonde kid so every time that it after home alone came out everyone told me i looked like him even though i looked nothing like him i right. just had the same color <laughs> hair and i was the same age uh but uh i remember watching the good son and just like being fascinated that this kid from that i had seen in home alone and i think maybe richie rich had already come out by that point i can't remember but uh seeing him in this like horror movie along with elijah wood uh i loved it when i was a kid i thought it was great it scared me and i thought i i still remember watching that as a kid so I that's the first thing on that... a whim like literally like a month ago which was weird. yeah does it hold up because i haven't seen it in years it's all right it's all, it's all right. right i'm not gonna yeah. say it's amazing or anything nice. but it's still macaulay culkin is still kevin McAllister in it that same thing yeah yeah so uh <laughs> anyway that's people anyway i'm just saying that that's that's not a bad direction to go yeah but where did yeah, you end absolutely. up going anyway so i uh i did want to stick with the theme of paranoia with a little bit of desperation desperation with the idea of like trying to convince the people around you that someone is not what they seem um but on the comedic spectrum so from 1991, story by Alvin Sargent and Laura Ziskin, who we wow. just finished talking about with the Spider-Man movies. Uh, screenplay by Tom Schulman, directed by Frank Oz. I know what it is. I, I only it, know what this is because I looked up Alvin Sargent and Laura Ziskin's filmographies when we were doing <laughs> Spider-Man and yeah. was surprised to see this movie on the list. I mentioned uh, it during Spider-Man because Laura Ziskin apparently had to like stand up to Bill Murray. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it's what about Bob? It's the yeah, movie. What about Bob? <laughs> uh, you know, just looking at, I mean, it's, I absolutely adore it. I think there's so many great, just fall down, fold yourself in half funny moments. Frank um, Oz is a, underrated director yeah i mean we've talked it, about him in one of our first i think it was our second ever roulette episode when we did little shop of horrors yeah and but if you look at what about bob that could very be that could very easily be recut into some sort of like a horror movie. psychological <laughs> horror movie <laughs> somebody should do a remake of what about bob but it's just a horror movie version still still bill murray but yeah still bill murray. feels like it is <laughs> right I'm sailing. How has that not been done on sailing. YouTube already? I know, like at least like somebody recut the trailer. Like you know where somebody yeah. did like Mrs. Doubtfire the horror mm -hmm. movie. Have you yeah. ever seen that trailer? <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, do that. Well, anyway, my mine. Like I said, my initial pick was Sleeping with the Enemy or The Good Son. But um, after reading that that quote from the AV Club, I got to go Night of the Hunter yeah. uh, because I think that's just too perfect. I think it's just too perfect and and. Always a good excuse to watch Night of the Hunter. It's it is a it just I love that movie so much. It's like probably a top ten all time movie for me. I I just think it's incredible. Nice. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Criterion put out a outstanding Blu Ray a couple of years ago of it. It's a beautiful film too, like visually just stunning. But and Robert Mitchum is so damn scary in it. He's like one of the <laughs> scariest uh, movie protagonists of all time. Anyway, it really so. really is good and. and one day you'll be able to hear our old episode about it, or we'll do it again. Or we'll do another one. Yeah. yeah. So despite a poor box office showing, the stepfather actually spawned a sequel in 1989. That, that was possibly due to it being a you know a pretty decent hit on video once it came out. Uh, directed by Jeff Burr, the stepfather two 
sees Terry O'Quinn return as Jerry Blake. Hmm. Uh, at the beginning of the film, we find that he's been institutionalized, but soon escapes and travels to Los Angeles, creates a new identity as a psychiatrist, and begins to pursue a single mother played by Meg Foster, who lives across the street from him along with her son, who's played by Jonathan Brandis, a very young Jonathan Brandis. Meg yeah. Foster, also a Star Trek alum. Oh, yeah. I Her Meg Foster's eyes yeah. freak me out. Yeah. <laughs> like, in, in the best way. I love her. I mean, she's obviously, yeah. she's in... Uh, they live is probably that's the one she's in right the john carpenter mm-hmm. they live um mm-hmm. that's probably one of her most well-known roles that and masters of the universe i was uh, gonna say masters of the universe <laughs> are probably her most well-known roles but she's she's, she's good also she's in uh in uh, the, the, the zombie movie too which lords of salem isn't it lords of salem? oh yeah she is oh that's right yeah, that's yeah. not wait lords of salem's not a zombie movie it's a witch movie no, I meant like Rob Zombie movie. Oh, Rob Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's in she's in Lords of Salem and Thirty One. Yeah. yeah, she's she's great. I love Meg Foster, but uh, I think I think so, that was our, uh, fellas. Was that our first uh, Laurel and Hardy slip up? Mix up? <laughs> was, was, was that our who's on first bit? Uh, first of all, it's Abbott and Costello. Abbott yeah. Costello, yeah, Sorry. <laughs> right. I think. I uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's Abbott and Costello. Uh, the stepfather too is pretty good. Uh, it's it's not as good as the first one, but it's worth watching. Jeff Burr is that director. We talked about him when we did a bonus episode on Pumpkinhead 2 back when we did Pumpkinhead for a roulette episode because he directed Pumpkinhead 2. Uh, he's just like the go-to like horror movie sequel guy because uh, he also did, I think, Puppet Master 4 and 5, which are two oh, of the better Puppet Master God, movies. I love those, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he, he's just like, that's his thing. He just comes along and does sequels to other horror movies. I don't know. If but, I were a director, I honestly feel like that's how I would be. Like, yeah. I'd be like, I may not be the like the OG guy, but I'll come in and have some fun with some shit you already figured out. Right, know? yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Stepfather 2 is pretty good. It's worth watching, I think. It's got a really fun finale that takes place at a wedding, like him and Meg Foster's wedding. Uh, is the finale of the movie, and nice. it, it's it's definitely worth checking out. It's it's really fun. It's also got uh, Caroline Williams in it from Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two. Stretch, uh, oh, one of my nice. favorite screen scream queens of all time. Yeah. Uh, she's in it. She plays a pretty pretty major role in it as well. So in 1992, a third film in the Stepfather saga was released as a made for television movie. Uh, it's the it's called the Stepfather Three. Uh, Terry O'Quinn does not return for this sequel. He's instead replaced by Robert Whiteman. In the role, same playing the same character, I guess. I haven't watched it. It's on Shutter, but I didn't bother because the reviews were pretty bad on oh, that no. one. Uh, <laughs> so I, I didn't, I didn't waste my time with it. But uh, then in 2009, of course, they made a remake as they do with every recognizable IP these days. So mm-hmm. uh, the the remake was directed by Nelson McCormick, who had already directed the mediocre Prom Night remake just a year earlier. Listen to uh, Justin this- with that shade. <laughs> the prom night remake come on you know i'm not lying <laughs> uh the stepfather remake stars dylan walsh from nip tuck probably hoping to make his like feature film his leap into feature film right. uh but it did work didn't work out for him uh it also stars seal award Penn badgley and amber heard uh, and it received almost unanimously negative reviews at the time of release <sighs> well i like Penn badgley I can say that. <laughs> well, yeah, he he had to have been really young. I mean, this was. I think I I was looking up fifteen years about ago. It, almost. Yeah, I think he plays like a the son. The son. He would have to. Yeah. Amber Heard would probably be like a daughter. At I mean, 
15 years ago she would have been about that age yeah too. so maybe there's two yeah. kids or maybe yeah. they're dating i don't know it's weird i saw uh in the commentary uh uh they asked joe rubin how he feels about that and uh he says quote i don't have like that abel ferrara feeling where i want to eat the braids of the people doing the remake i just take it as a compliment <laughs> that it had enough impact that they got they got to redo it <laughs> <laughs> what what abel ferrara movie got remade I don't know. I mean, I was did a remake. He did Body Snatcher, so he's created a remake himself. But I can't think of a. Oh wait, no, Driller Killer didn't get remade. I don't know what Abel Ferrara movie would have gotten remade. Somebody tweet at us and let us know. Yeah, because I'm trying to think of his movies that would have been Bad Lieutenant. That wasn't a remake. That was right. (laughs) No, he he did the remake, didn't he? No, no. no. Uh, Werner Herzog did, did the uh, the remake. If you want to even call it a remake, I don't think that's a remake. I just think it's a it's a completely different story than the original one. But well, I guess I could be see the only one he's thinking. That's got to be it. Yeah, I can't think of what else it would be. But that's a movie we need to cover. Both both versions. I think Port of Call of New Orleans is wonderful. It's a great movie. And the original one, uh, if you ever wanted to see um, Harvey Keitel's Dong. There it is. I mean, I feel like this podcast Let's go is ahead turning and check into that off the bucket list. <laughs> yeah. This podcast is really about finding those special moments in film. It's <laughs> <laughs> just hanging dong. That's the name of the new the podcast now. We should That's really just dong. that should be us. We should just over sexualize the guys. Like for all the years <laughs> of like Mr. Skid and yep. everything where people are looking for titties. We'll be yep. the guys that are like, we're gonna tell you what so minute our, in what yep. movie you could visit see our Harvey website as dick. Hangingdong.com. If you ever want to see John Locke's penis, well, we've got you covered here. (laughs) Well, uh, the stepfather's director, Joseph Rubin, his follow-up to the film was a movie called True Believer, which starred James Woods and Robert Downey Jr. But uh, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but it was his 1991 thriller, Sleeping with the Enemy, starring Julia Roberts, that would become the biggest hit of his career. And that film was followed up by another big hit in 1993. Another movie we've mentioned a couple of times here, The Good Son starring Macaulay Culkin and Elijah Wood. But I promised that we would get to the rest of John List's story, the real-life killer that inspired the the stepfather. So uh, in 1989, this is two years after the release of The Stepfather, the story of List's murders were the subject of an episode of America's Most Wanted during that show's first season. I just wanted to add that 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 list is... uh, or. That episode is called John Emil List slash John Riccardi. If uh, anybody is looking up the uh, America's ah. Most Wanted series, it's what got his we... name in it. I don't know. I don't know why I needed to say that, but well, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> now well, we know it... his middle name is apparently Emil. There you go. So that segment featured a uh, there was this clay bust that was created by a forensic artist named Frank Bender. So basically, he tried to you know look. At I guess they I mean obviously they eventually found some photos of what this looked like back in back in the seventies, but Frank Bender tried he created this clay bust that basically he was trying to guess what John List would look like twenty years later, mm-hmm. uh, and he he so he he basically aged him up but uh, based on old photographs so that it, this is obviously bef- this. What, what did I say? Nineteen eighty nine. So this is obviously before they were doing this via computer and all that. So this is just a guy who 
specializes in this and guessing what he's going to look like. And he creates a clay bust, like a 3D model of what he thinks John List is going to look like uh, two decades later. (laughs) So they show this on, and they show this clay bust on the episode. And two of the viewers of this episode of America's Most Wanted uh, were a couple of women named Wanda Flannery and Eva Mitchell, who happened to be John List's next door neighbors. Uh, as they watched the show, several of the details about the killer began to sound a little bit familiar to them. They they said this guy was a Lutheran. Uh, he was an accountant, you know, things like this. And, and all these details combined with this incredibly accurate bust that Frank Bender created began to kind of tip these women off that they had been living next door to a mass murderer. <laughs> Less than two weeks after the episode aired, List was apprehended because they they called the number that you see at the end of the show. And he would be convicted on five counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences. List would remain behind bars for the rest of his life, passing away in 2008 at the age of 82. I think he died of pneumonia. That that bust, by the way, that clay bust uh, is now, I think it's owned by like the Smithsonian or somebody, but it's actually in the Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And I what? am determined to make a pilgrimage there this summer to go see this thing. <laughs> uh, Cause I'll give me a chance. I'll get a chance to go, I'll go to Dollywood. I'll go see a, a, the crime museum. It'll be a great weekend. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, they've also got OJ's Bronco in that museum. What? <laughs> yeah. They've got OJ's Bronco and they've got Ted Bundy's Volkswagen Beetle there. Oh, that is so and, weird. <laughs> I, I want to go. <laughs> Um, but I've gone to the Museum of Death a couple of times in New Orleans, so yeah, well, I get it. It, it makes a little more sense in New Orleans, but like Pigeon Forge, Tennessee is such a yeah, touristy a... little family place to have right. the, the crime museum <laughs> there is, is weird. weird. But uh, that Frank hey, Bender guy is wild, dude. Like he's a self-taught sculptor. Like yeah. uh, if you look him up, he's he's dead now, but he apparently just did all this on his own. He was like a painter. I think he took some painting classes, but he wanted to learn to sculpt. So he started sculpting for himself. He snuck into a morgue and <laughs> saw it into a morgue. Yeah, I think is the way <laughs> I read it. And then he found that like, there was a woman there who was shot in the head and they couldn't figure her out. And he's like, they didn't know, like they couldn't identify her or something. And he said, I know what she looks like. Legitimately. This is the story. He's like, I know what she looks like. I can show you. And the guy's like, do you have any, experience in forensic science he's like i don't know what that means and, <laughs> but he sculpted this woman's face and it was apparently her and wow. it was like dead well, on and he was like apparently like just amazing at this just like he could do people who they couldn't identify he could sculpt perfectly that's wild or like predict the future of what they i mean if you like. look at the bust that he created of of john list and then look at what john list looked like at the time of his arrest it is identical he even put glasses on him that were more uh, i mean they're they're not like modern but modern compared to early 70s and they're they look almost exactly like the the glasses that john list actually wore uh like it looks it's a, it is like mind-blowing how similar his, that bus looks to the real life person like he nailed it it's crazy wow. it is too bad they tore that house down by the way that did they really save cool. that tiffany uh i was about to say the world lost a tiffany original i guess i don't know because <laughs> they should have removed that and like sold it or something i guess would, i guess yeah. it's hard to sell even a tiffany window that, that's been part of a house where <laughs> five people were murdered yeah you know i saw in an interview with uh connie chung in 2002 uh 
he finally uh, list finally expressed remorse. Said, mm. "I wish I had never done what I did." Too uh, little, too late, Jonah. I've regretted my action and prayed for forgiveness ever since. They asked him why he had not just, just taken his own life, and he said he believed that suicide would prevent him from going to heaven, and he hoped to make it there to be reunited with his family, who probably don't want to see him. But <laughs> they probably would not <laughs> welcome him with open arms. I don't think. Uh, well, over the years, List and his crimes have been the subject of several other films and television shows, including uh, the 1993 film Judgment Day, the John List story, which starred future real-life wife murderer Robert Blake as John List, which, <laughs> <laughs> which is wild. That is nice. uh, in 2022, last year, Netflix released a TV series called The Watcher, starring Joe Mantello as a character named John Graff. Uh, and although The Watcher is a work of fiction, several elements from List's life and murders were borrowed. Like he's an accountant, he's he's a Lutheran. Like like it's a there's a lot in that show that is clearly inspired by this murder. Wow! I was watching. I watched that show, and uh, I didn't know at the time that it was uh, based on this. Yeah, and it's a Ryan Murphy show, so. I lost it about halfway through. <laughs> like most Ryan Murphy shows about three episodes in and you're just like, nope, I'm done with this. It's like the first episode. You're like, this could be wicked. And yeah. then yeah. Three episodes. You're like, okay, I don't, Come on. I don't know about <laughs> Come this on. anymore. It, yeah. That's how I feel about every show that he's ever done, except for Nip Tuck. And honestly, if I rewatch Nip Tuck now, I'd probably feel that way about it. Cause it shows ridiculous. Uh, but none of the other projects that were based on John list are as well known as the stepfather. Uh, despite its initial box office failure, the film has become a cult hit. Uh, as recently as last year, it was the subject of an episode of The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. And you could attribute this a, to a lot of things, I think. Terry O'Quinn's profile being raised uh, after starring on the hit TV series Lost probably has a lot to do with it, as does the recent rise in popularity of the true crime genre. Uh, but regardless, I mean, it, the, the movie is a legitimate cult film, one of those movies that you know, it was basically overlooked and ignored upon release, but has become at least a, at least a moderate cult hit, which uh, is a story we we always love to hear on this show because obviously you, the cult films are our bread and butter. Right. Uh, so it's it's always nice that when a movie, yeah, it's great if a movie gets recognition when it's first released, of course, but sometimes it takes a few years, sometimes it takes a couple decades, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's always nice that, that at least a movie finds its audience if and if you're a fan of this type of like domestic thriller or you're a fan of terry o'quinn because you saw him on lost or whatever other shows he's done uh i would highly recommend checking out the stepfather it's it's a little solid entry well i think that about does it for this week's roulette episode fellas it'll be uh several more weeks before we get to another roulette episode uh probably sometimes towards the end of the summer i guess is when our next yeah. series will wrap up uh so justin what do you have in mind for us? What what cinematic adventures are you going to uh, impose on impose uh, on, on on me and, and Gary and our listeners? I, I really like the, movies on me. I really like the idea of like Todd having to watch uh, these movies li like Alex in A Clockwork Orange, where he's just strapped to a chair with his, with his eyelids pried open. That's what which, he looks like. That's which, why we got to get the video which version. Might of be what there. we have to do with Todd on this next series. So, oh boy. <laughs> No, you've seen one of these movies. We were talking about it off mic, but you, one of these movies you uh, you have actually seen. So I, I'm a little mm -hmm. less worried now um, 
knowing that you've seen, I don't know what you think of it. We'll find that out when we do the episode, but yeah, we're about to, so we just did our roulette episode, which means it's time for a brand new long form series. We're going to be doing a uh, six episode series on this next one. So for the next, what's that? 12 weeks, next 12 weeks, we're going to be yeah. uh, covering. A, Every time fel- you say this, you add another number to it. I feel no, like- wait. <laughs> We counted them earlier off. I know. And I thought you said five. I have four DVDs in front of me. I just bought one more. That was the fifth. You need hairspray. And I need hairspray. Okay. Yeah. There you go. So if that doesn't tip you off, uh, who we're going to (laughs) be talking about, uh, it's a filmmaker that I have been looking forward to covering really. And I I know I say this all the time, but it's because I have a long list of filmmakers that I want to cover on this show, but I've been looking forward to covering this guy since we started this podcast and uh, so when we did Jodorowsky, I mentioned that that was going to be one of several series that we did that were kind of uh, part of an an overall, let's call it a maxi series about the history of midnight movies. Mm-hmm. So you had uh, a, about four different, like really major movies during that movement. Uh, and we're going three of those filmmakers. We're going to do full series on. We've already done Jodorowsky. That's one. This is the second series that's part of that overall midnight movies thing that we're doing and uh we are going to be talking about mr john waters the pope of trash himself Uh, so you know we like to do this thing where we do a more mainstream series like spider-man that we just finished and then go to something a little more esoteric a little more weirdo cult stuff which is honestly the stuff that i really love digging into because i don't know it's just I just love that shit anyway. And I yeah. <laughs> love John Waters. I love his movies. I love him as a person. Uh, I think he's just a, an entertaining guy. Oh, uh, sure. So we're going to be doing <laughs> six movies. We're going to be starting with multiple maniacs. We're going to be doing everything from there up to hairspray. Uh, we'll probably do a series down the line where we cover everything after hairspray, which would be Crybaby through a dirty shame. Uh, but that's probably a ways out for now we're going to be covering just the stuff that he did essentially his stuff that he did with divine who was his like muse during those early years so we're going to be starting at the very beginning of his career talking about his his background and everything leading up to multiple maniacs and then all the way through kind of his mainstream breakthrough with hairspray so six movies starting with multiple maniacs so if you haven't seen it Check it out. Watch it along with us, as always. Uh, but otherwise, uh, we will see you on the first episode of that series. Where can you fellas be found on the internet? At this is Gary Horn on Instagram and Twitter. If you like wrestling, I host the This Is Pro Wrestling uh, show on at This Is Pro Wrestling. It's on YouTube. Oh, <laughs> really not good at this for some weird reason. Uh, it's at TIPW show on Instagram. I also work with the National Wrestling Alliance, and you can access their links in their bio on Instagram at NWA. You can find me playing Star Trek Adventures on Cosmic Crit on YouTube at Cosmic Crit. I'm also working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order on my show, Computer Resume Podcasts, available now wherever you get your podcasts, and on all the socials at Computer Resume. And I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond, as long as they behave themselves. I'm at Justin underscore Bishop on Instagram uh, and Twitter. The show is at Cinema underscore Shuck. That's on Instagram and Twitter as well. You can also find us on Facebook if you're an old person who still uses Facebook. Uh, You can also check out all (laughs) of our episodes as well as links to our Discord and our merch at cinemashock.net. As always, uh, 
If you like this episode, share it with anyone you know, however you want to do it. Text them, carrier pigeon, you know, whatever <laughs> it takes. Just get this, get it out to them. Let your let, let your movie loving friends know. And uh, if you if you're so inclined, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. That really helps us get into a lot of in front of a lot more people. It really does. Uh, and until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather, and be excellent to each other. I want to ask you something. Are you interested in the keys or are you interested in Johnny? <laughs> I'm so glad that was a short and sweet one after the last couple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They've been going off the rails. I, I, I admit, I was trying to rein it in this episode. <laughs> no, thank you. Good job. <laughs>